back at it. Okay. Mm. My mouth's broken now. Okay. So 1997. Hey everybody, welcome to the No Sick Days podcast. My name is John. I'm Chris. And we are two friends who've been having the same self-employed friends. I think yep. I did the exact same thing on the the bad episode we'll yep. talk about in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, two self-employed friends who have been having the same conversation about video games for 29 years. Yep, still going. Still going. And you've been with us for one of those, at least. <laughs> at least one. So yeah. Thanks Thanks for sticking around or coming and meeting us here. Yeah, so the recording woes to which we are referencing, um, we attempted to record at the brewery, Fort Tap Brewing, uh, and we thought, because I'd done, I'd done a podcast just before then, that same week in the brew house and worked great. Um, they obviously had better equipment or better mics suited to the environment. Ours are not so much uh, suited because we picked up a lot of background noise, which would have been okay, except for <laughs> that's when the landscaping service decided to show up. Yeah, they're once a month that they come over, apparently. Coincidentally, uh, that's why we weren't recording at your place because your landscaping people were there. And I was yep. like, come on over to Fort Tap, it yeah. works. Um, and even it, that, maybe, but then our uh, nitrogen... Um, capturing machine that we use to run some of our gas lines uh, decided to kick on, which basically shakes the walls next to where we were sitting, uh, which kind of ruined the end of the podcast. It was really messed up, and unfortunately, we felt like it was a pretty good episode. Yeah. The conversations we had, we'll have again at some point once we've recovered and can (laughs) record 50 minutes of conversation again in some capacity. And the sad thing is it's like... Oh yeah, that was definitely the best episode we've ever recorded. Sorry you can't hear it. Right. It's a nightmare to listen to, though. <laughs> like, it's definitely kind of headache-inducing. Yeah, very much so. So we're not going to be... Um, we're we're going to be revisiting the conversations we had at that at a later episode, because Chris wants to re-research, and I'd like to do some research, and uh, just so it's fresh in our mind. So today we got some other stuff, but first... Uh, well, actually, today we can go and should we tell the topic we're doing. Yeah, we're kind of taking a walk down memory lane. And we're going to talk about games of the 90s, primarily games that were most formative for us, or games where we have long-lasting memories for whatever reason. And then we'll just talk about some other games that have come out during that time that we enjoyed. But we won't necessarily get to every single game because either we didn't play every game or because we just didn't care about it. Uh, I brought up Myst, and John was like, yeah, I didn't like that. And I was like, yep, that was (laughs) a game where I walked up to something and said, what the hell, I have to turn this weird-ass... Yeah, lever yeah. Uh, or, or wheel. Uh-huh. I mean, to I'm my good. child brain, I was like, eh, this is boring. Yeah, this isn't killing things, though. <laughs> Why am I not killing things? I'm not shooting or killing anything here. I don't understand. Uh, yeah, so it, it'll be fun. We're both kids of the 90s. Um, apparently the 90s are cool again. So, you know, why not? We're going to we're gonna walk back through and uh, some of these games. What's, what's really neat about this is seeing how far the game world has developed and and in a lot of these games, we see, you know, the beginnings of genres that we, like, just take for granted today. And back then, it's like, this is the first time I've ever seen a first-person shooter. This is the first time I've ever even seen an RTS. Or the first time I've played an MMORPG. It's like, the concept itself is like, well, this is amazing, you know. And, and a lot of that, just by happenstance of what we first happen to enjoy, still, at least for me, plays a big role in what I look for in games. And that has changed a little bit over time 
but it's almost sort of infected me to some degree where I've really sought after games to kind of fulfill this nostalgia, but realizing I don't necessarily like that gameplay anymore. And so my body's like, you like this? And I'm like, but I don't. And then I don't know what I want. <laughs> so it's very weird. And uh, it'll be fun to kind of talk about that. And we'll, we'll get into that. And uh, but first, uh, let's do a few updates. Uh, Chris, you have any life updates, game updates you want to throw into the beginning? I'm going to talk about a life update first, since we are self-employed, and it's nice when self-employed elements kind of get involved with this, or not in this case. So <laughs> it's not game-related, but um, a lot of my ads on Google came offline uh, about 10 days ago, mm -hmm. or two weeks ago now, with the reason of China. Okay. About 1% of my ads serve in China, and the reason was basically a umbrella rationale of your product can't be served in China because China policy dictates yada 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 because China is China. Uh, but instead of just pausing the ads that were irrelevant, they were actually serving in China, they paused the ads that were running in the US and in Europe and in Australia oh. and in India and like every other country in the world, they just paused all these ads and it took about 10 days to resolve. Uh, so it was absolutely a pain. And the only person who was actually helpful the whole time was my account manager, but the general Google customer support was absolutely a disaster and a nightmare to deal with because there's just nothing I can do basically. It's yeah. just kind of relaying through my account manager and hoping that she can push through because she at least works for Google. That was nice. Yeah, so I mean at least she was helpful and yeah. really responsive, but that was absolutely a pain and having it come back with all of her ads aren't showing because of China, it's a very odd thing to see when you wake up in the morning. Yeah, and so you, you um, these are ads for your VPN yeah, it's for the VPN okay. website. Which, which you know, when you first told me, I was like, yeah, it makes sense. I don't think China's big on VPNs. Yeah, China, they have some policy dictates that something with servers are not allowed. Basically, if you like connect to another server for any reason, it's not allowed because China. Yeah, because China. Because China. <laughs> um, that sucks. It does suck. So luckily, they're all at least back online and things are running once again. Good. Yeah, I couldn't imagine if like a, a vendor stopped selling our beer for 10 days. Um, or like if one vendor was like, "Hey, we can't carry your beer right now for the next ten, like ne next ten days," and then all of our vendors are like, "Okay, well, we can't sell your beer." Right. I mean, the frustrating yeah. thing with uh, this is Google really doesn't have competition. Sure, there are other search engines, but if you want to advertise for search, you have to go to AdWords. And so they don't really have any incentive to necessarily provide good customer service because right. you're going to want to work with them if they want to work with you. It's, there's nothing around it, so. That sucks. Right. It's just an element where there's a monopoly on that. That Google is, you know, the best product out there, so they kind of deserve what they have to yeah. some extent. But it is still frustrating as an advertiser sometimes. Uh, I'm glad it got fixed. I'm glad it got fixed. So I uh, have an update about the little child that I brought into the world. Mm -hmm. um, so she's been fantastic up until recently, and I'm bringing this up because you'd offered me coffee, and I was like, I'm actually very caffeinated right now, and it reminded me of. Uh, Something called a coffee nap. Have you ever heard of this? Uh, is it where you take coffee, you drink coffee, and you go to bed immediately, and then you wake up from the nap, and you're like super hyped up? That's it exactly. Okay. Yeah. So somewhere around 2015 to 2018, that became a big thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember, yeah, and I was reading about it, and I was like, I remember reading about it. I never really did it. So I was reading about it. I'm like, oh yeah, I've been. I just started doing that in 2003 when I was at UT, and I did it again this morning because. <laughs> Uh, well, back at UT, what I would do is when study time, I'd go to the library, I'd pound like a double shot espresso, fall asleep on my textbook, and then wake up 20 minutes later. And I did this by accident. I was just tired. 
and I would just fall asleep because I was like trying to study and it's so quiet and nice in there and I'd pass out and I'd wake up and pretty quickly I learned I was like hey I feel amazing you, you stumbled on the coffee net yourself stumbled on, stumbled on the coffee net myself back in 2003 so I did it again this morning because Arden uh, is doing something called regressing where instead of sleeping through the night as she has been now she's like waking up at 2 in the morning 2.30 and uh, the issue is that she's going through a growth spurt she's a big baby uh, right. Like, yeah, I think I mentioned before the podcast, both my family and my wife's family are all like six feet plus. Like I'm six four, closing on six five, and Aaron's brother and dad are taller than I am. Big family. Yep. So uh, she's a big kid in the, like the 99th percentile of everything. Yeah, you two are very tall people. Yeah, and so she's consuming a crazy amount of food, and so she's regressing. So I had to get up at 2.30 this morning, and then I got up again at 7 o'clock this morning. Both times it was like changing, feeding the whole thing. And so I looked at my fridge and there's this can of this Japanese cold brew coffee called Boss. That our, yep, I've had that. Oh yeah, our, our neighbors, the Fairweather Cidery next door, they they actually um, stock it by the case. And so we're always going over there getting some. And so I saw that in the fridge, I grabbed it, chugged it, and then crawled right back into bed and went to sleep and woke up feeling amazing. And then I had another cup of coffee. So I'm like writing that and I'm gonna crash soon. I actually have to work at the bar tonight till midnight. So oh boy, be, it's gonna be interesting. Are y'all open till midnight on Thursdays? Yeah, we are. And Aaron's not feeling well, so I said I'd take her bar shift. So it's gonna be a long, long day. So there's gonna be more coffee just without the napping later. Oh yeah, cool. Um, all right, but let's talk about video games. Okay. Oh yeah, mm, video games, right? Yeah, that's our podcast here. Uh, right? Okay. Uh, I've been playing only two games really. I've been playing Division Two and Tekken, just depending on whether I want to fight people or help people. Man, okay. I guess, or I could kill digital people, I suppose. But so Tekken, you know, has been going on with the whole thing. Uh, there's the big tournament that I went to last year called Texas Showdown. I'm going again this year. It is in a month, basically, from today, from tomorrow, something like that. It's the second weekend of May. So I'm kind of trying to get a little bit more practice in. I've uninstalled every other fighting game. Oh, wow. Every other fighting game is uninstalled. I am still signed up for three other fighting games there. I'm going to be awful. Um, remind us, where is Texas Showdown taking place? So Texas Showdown is in Houston. Oh, cool. Yeah. What part of Houston? Uh, it's Galleria area. It's oh. near... Uh, it's the Galleria like area. Kind of area close to where we grew up. Pretty close to it, yeah. It's about 15 minutes from our old well, maybe homes. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so it is in Houston. It's in one of the hotels there. I forgot which one. And play video games for three days. There's going to be some big names there like there usually are. It's not part of the Tekken World Tour officially, and so it's a kind of minor stop on there. There was like a kind of middle ground stop last year, so it may not be as love, crazy level of competition for Tekken, but it's not relevant because I'm still not going to win. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it and looking forward to the competition there. And I've been playing Division 2. So I'm playing Division Two with a few friends. Uh, my brother has it now. My cousin has it now. All on. Uh, play with it a little bit. We play on PC. Yeah. Dude. So so if you you know get a new PC or upgrade your PC or some <laughs> element of PC PC PC, you can we can all play together. <laughs> yeah. And I can run you through the game. Just think how much time you'll save by me running you through all the early I, game stuff. In Division One, we definitely ran a friend or two through the game pretty fast to get it caught up. You can get through stuff really fast with power leveling in the game. Just you just need somebody to kind of help you out here. Yeah, that's it. So I'm still really enjoying it. The loot element of the game is just fantastic with all of the different builds that you have available. I've been spending a lot of time kind of theory crafting different builds and right. combinations of unique talents and attributes that I can combine together for 
you know, maximum damage or maximum survivability or whatever the case is. So I've got a spreadsheet on Google Docs of all of these different builds that I'm sort of shooting for. And I can look and see, okay, I do want this talent on this item or I don't want this talent on this item. And I'm slowly just starting to hoard them. But it is getting a little crazy hoarding them all because I've got 100 items or so in my stash now. Dude. And a lot of them, I don't remember why I saved them in the first place. So I periodically <laughs> go back through them and just start deleting them because I'm like, what was I doing here? You're deep in. I am deep into that element. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, played, I think it was on Monday. I just, addiction hit me. And I couldn't do anything but play that game. And I recovered <laughs> and back to doing normal work this week. But... I couldn't do anything except play Division 2 on Monday. That's crazy. It is crazy. So it's a really good game. They the, the developers also seem like they're really listening. There's a few issues with the game, because there always are with any of these multiplayer games. Right. But they seem to have their finger on the pulse of the community, where they're responding to the topics people are most interested in. Mm-hmm. And we'll hopefully see if they actually resolve these issues in a reasonable manner in the next few weeks or mm-hmm. months. Yeah, the, my only outstanding question with Division 2... Although otherwise, uh, other than wishing I could, it had some form of crossplay so we could play, right? Because um, I would get it for PS4. Sure. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Is that you know a lot of the reviews kept saying, oh, it's it's made it's fixed everything from Division One, right? And I was we were talking about this offline. I realized also that it seemed like all people saying that never played Division One. Um, <laughs> I never played it. It just had such bad reviews when it came out that I completely stayed away. I mean, there were there it definitely had its problems, but they patched the patches came quickly and improved a lot, fixed a lot. Um, I'm not saying it's a perfect game, but, and I'm not saying Division 2 isn't like this... I just, what I'm saying is I don't, I don't know if it's a dramatically better game, not having played it. Sure. But I, I, what I will say is I did Google like outright, like, why is Division 2 better than Division 1? And honestly, like, it, it, no one could give any concrete evidence of anything. They're just like, oh, well, it does this and does this and this, these are features. And I'm like, yeah, that was also all in Division <laughs> 1. I'm not hearing it just yet, with the exception of the multiplayer... Uh, it does sound like the multiplayer matching, like the way they do it live in the game, uh, is a little more seamless than it was in the in the first one. It's pretty easy. About half of the activities that you would engage in in the game, yeah. you can get through to matchmaking pretty easily, like yeah. finding a group within seconds. My, my One of my speculations is that, or I'm speculating that, uh, you know, a lot of the features that got added to Division 1 as the year progressed are probably all there at launch day in Division 2. And I'm wondering if that's if a lot of people just stopped playing Division One pretty fast, and now they pick up Division Two, and they're like, "Oh, look at all these features that are here." And don't maybe not realize that those all existed in Division that's One. That's probably true. From what I understand, when Division One ended, it kind of ended on Patch One Point Eight, which was great for all intents and purposes. I right. think they fixed a lot of the issues, like you were saying, from the initial launch. Yeah. So you might be right. It might just be it's great compared to base game <laughs> versus comparing it to where it was. Yeah. Or it might just be a refined system from that. Or it's great compared to the. Uh, negative reviews I read about the first one, you know. That's maybe like, maybe that's it. Yeah. Or it's just great compared to Destiny Two and Anthem. Or especially Anthem. <laughs> especially Anthem. Which oh, is that a good segue? I think so. Let's talk about Anthem for a second. Uh, still talking about Anthem, uh, and the reason why is uh, rec- talking about the community and the, no, <laughs> sort we're, of. We're talking about the community for a minute. Yeah. Um, so recently, uh, I think it was last week, uh, a guy named Jason Schreier. I'm hoping I got his name right. Right. Released an article through Kotaku. Uh, a very well-researched and extensive article. You don't really see video game journalism at this level. Uh, It's very impressive. And if you haven't, there's a follow-up regarding Dragon Age 4, because I think a lot of the resources he used for the Anthem article also gave him a lot of information about the Dragon Age 4 developments, um, which I'm excited about. Sure, definitely. So basically kind of eviscerating um, Bioware (laughs) 
uh, management more than, more so than the developers. Uh, and I, I was reading it, and you know, a lot of the anger that I was seeing in the community uh, kind of was shifting away from you know just a total hate on Bioware to man, I feel really bad for the developers. And I, the management, it sucks how like people come with vision and then get pushed out, and vision and pushed out, and and then no one could agree on what the game was, what it's supposed to be, and like some say that you know the E3 demo was was there's a, a joke I read somewhere where it's like you know the gamers said oh that's what kind of game Anthem is, and the developers go oh that's the kind of game you think it is. Okay, that's the game, <laughs> you know, that's which is scary. And right now there's there's two current offices operating for Bioware, one in Edmonton and one in Austin. And the Edmonton office was the primary developer for Anthem. And now it's been shifted to the Austin office, which currently does Star Wars The Old Republic. Um, and is also, yeah, is now tasked with kind of maintaining uh, Anthem, at least as I understand it. Okay. And so I was reading the article, thinking about conversations we've had about Anthem, the fact that I'm still playing it. I'd had a few whiskeys. I felt kind of bad, so I got <laughs> I got into the Anthem subreddit and I just said, "Hey, Bioware ATX, I own Fourth Tap Brewing down the street from y'all because they're not that far from our brewery." And I was like, "I'd love to buy you guys a beer." So I just felt bad. Sure, I didn't think about it, and I was like, "Cool." So I'm just I'm, being a nice guy, you got beer. Yeah, relatively easy for a person with a brewery to get beer away. It seemed like they were having a shitty month or shitty couple years, and were having an especially bad week. And right. So and me. they were and they were taking the brunt of an assault that really should have been directed it elsewhere was, in the company. Yeah, they're getting a lot of hate, and it really wasn't like the guys, the, the guys, uh, the guys and girls on the ground in the trenches here in Austin are not responsible for what Anthem is. They're just responsible for you know. Right. So it seems like with all the information that's been released, first it was everyone hates EA, and then it's like no, we actually hate Bioware, and it was like. Well, we don't really hate Bioware, we hate Bioware Edmonton. And that's like, hey, we don't hate Bioware Edmonton. We hate the like upper management of Bioware Edmonton. <laughs> yeah, or the or upper upper to middle or something. The constantly changing right. brand. And 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 to be fair, EA does share a little bit of responsibility because their company's overall drive is towards this games as a service. Sure. Which I think is I have without having spent too much time looking into it, I cannot think of an example where that would benefit the gamers. I think that only benefits the company, the publisher. Generally, it, it depends just how greedy you get. I think one of the elements that people appreciate about Division 2, and again, it might be just because it's juxtaposed against all these other games that have come out, not just Anthem and Destiny, but other MMOs in general, is Division 2, the way that they handle cosmetics is you can get, to my knowledge, all of them for free in the game just by playing. You slowly accumulate these apparel drops, which will get you... Do you have a scarf slot? Yeah, you have a scarf yeah, slot. Still, yeah, still I've, got I've, the scarf I've got slot. some dog tags there, I believe, right now. What? I yeah. can't get scarves. Oh, now they've got dog tags Whoa. and probably other elements of scarves. And so you can get all of these for free by playing the game, but you can also pay some money and get specifically what you want. Like, I thought about putting in five bucks just to get a cowboy hat to complement the random cowboy everything I got, including a line dance for my character. That's great. Because, I don't know, I'm enjoying the game and it's silly. There you go. Right? So, I mean, but, and if they make money off of that, that's fine, but that's a, I feel better kind of rewarding a company for something silly like that when I'm really enjoying the game. And if you make a good game first and you make it easy to get cosmetics, but you're like, hey, you can get it a little bit faster by just paying us some money or you like this game, hey, why not do it? Yeah. That's a lot easier of a pill to swallow for gamers. And I think that's the model that a lot of game Company should be following, right? Like it's well, I get what you mean, right? Um, so to bring it back back around to this this Reddit post that I had basically forgotten about, 
uh, by the time I <laughs> right. in the morning. So you had some whiskey, you're like, eh, whatever. Yeah. Deal later. I didn't, I figured nothing, nothing would come of it. So then I get to, sure. I wake up in the morning and I go to get a, uh, a, a haircut, because uh, it's my birthday that day. And your wife, who works at EA, sends me a message and says, hey, John, I'm like, what's up? And she goes, uh, that Reddit post you put up last night? And I was like, yeah, no, I remember that. She goes, it's all over the internal boards at EA Bioware. I'm like, what? So then I pull up the Reddit post, and at this point in the morning, it was already at uh, 70 or something upvotes and uh, 40 or 50 comments. Uh, mostly positive. We'll get into some of the negative ones right. in a moment. And you posted it to our Anthem. Right, Reddit the game Anthem. or whatever. The Anthem, the game. The official subreddit. Yeah, okay. Not, not to our Austin, but to Anthem. Right. And, and Which then, makes sense. Yeah. And then, uh, so then I was like, oh, that's cool. And I was like, I don't know what to do. So Rich was like, we'll respond to their comments. And I was like, okay, I can do that. And it was my first time having any sort of like attention on Reddit. So I started, so I got my haircut, jumped in my car. The number of upvotes had doubled, and the number of comments had doubled. And I was like, that still seems like a lot to happen in an hour and a half. So then I start responding to comments, um, and through the course of the day, by that evening, actually by that evening, my post had hit, I was like, 600 upvotes, <laughs> wow. 200 comments, and I had gone triple gold, which apparently is a big deal. That's a lot of gold. Yeah, that's Indeed. a Like, I got one, I was like, that's... So you must have been on the front page for the Anthem subreddit. I guess so. Or people at Bioware said thank you and they hit me up. So the other thing that happened. 600 is a lot. And yeah. I think especially for Anthem. I think the top post now probably has a few thousand. Yeah. And it goes down pretty fast. So I felt pretty good about that. But what was really cool is that the um, I, I had people from Bioware and Austin reach out to me directly uh, a couple times, which was which was super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it was great to, and I'm still kind of talking to some of them right now. Because uh, we're gonna send some beer over to the, their office fridge, and uh, <laughs> that's cool. But yes, yeah, so we basically, I, 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 we said, hey, for the weekend, we'll you know come in, show us your badge, and we'll buy you a beer, uh, and they did. So we had quite a few, like uh, a couple guys from like the lead development or designing, designing, designers group. I don't know. They came by. Uh, Whatever. Some of the Star Wars, the Old Republic teams showed up like throughout the weekend. Some people coming in from Bio were hanging out. Uh, I was out of town, which sucked, because I wanted to meet all of them. Sure. <laughs> uh, what a bummer. Yeah. It was been fun to have that conversation. And I was, like, trying to explain to people at the brewery why I was so excited. Because, like, yeah, even though we're in the midst of Anthem and Bioware and the question of, like, is Bioware's soul, like, gone, it's still, like, a game company that I have been following for a very long time. Uh, have been a, <laughs> which we'll get into which later. we'll get into, yeah. <laughs> uh, have made some of my favorite games of all time. Right. And this is, like, pre Mass Effect and Dragon Age. This is before that they made some of the, some of my favorite all time games. So, uh, in in one sense, it's also kind of like you're like a, a a rock band you used to really like back in the day, like released a really shitty album, and you're like, hey man, like that sucks, dude. I'll buy you a beer, and then they actually get in touch with you and said, yeah, thank you. We'll come by and have a beer, and then they do. <laughs> that's fair. That's kind of how it right? feels. Yeah. Sure. That's cool. Uh, but then you also had some oh yeah dude negative so, backlash. I also knew that I was really hitting something when uh, it got reposted, and we started getting a negative backlash about I got called a, a gamer cell, <laughs> which which I had never heard of. I've never heard of that either. So it's an incel. We all know what that is or an in, in, involuntary celibate. Mm-hmm. I won't get into how fucking stupid that is. Um, <laughs> yeah. But there we just, I was called a gamer cell, and pandering to the developer cells and then we had somebody threaten to firebomb our brewery uh that's the most absurd surprisingly toxic uh, which is okay because again I, I kind of associate that with 
uh, you know, hitting, hitting some level of, of notice. It's sure, a, right. It's yeah. inevitable. There's always people on every side that are insane. So I saw the firebombing comments, and I saw the weird gamer cell comments. So I started writing, I wrote this whole paragraph responding to it, and I was about to hit, hit post, and I was like, wait, 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 wait. Don't be the trolls. Never be It's a wise choice. Yeah. <laughs> so I deleted you're, it. You're not getting anything good out of that. I ignored it. I mean, I threw a downvote against it. It's like, man, fuck you guys. Sure. Agreed. Um, and then that was it. So that's not the end of the story, though. I just I, was, I got in from out of town. I was out of town all weekend. And so now, you know, following up with the, some of the people who are Bioware who have been sent me messages. And um, hopefully it'll turn to a chance. My, here's my dream. We're going to go deliver beer to the office, right? And okay. I'll call you and be like, hey, Chris, for, you want to help me deliver beer to Bioware's mm-hmm. office? And you're going to say, yeah, I do. Of course. And then we're going to go to Bioware's office here in Austin. And then we're going to somehow get the scoop on Dragon Age 4. Oh, we're going to get the first scoop of Dragon Age 4? You better believe it, man. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're going to go in with beer. Uh, we're going to get everybody drunk. <laughs> and then we're, they're going to be on our podcast without realizing it. This, this is how our podcast is going to explode. Yeah. <laughs> this is the, the Dragon Age 4 plan. It's been in yeah. works for years. The, the beer is called the, the Trojan Keg. <laughs> Trojan Keg? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm excited. The Trojan beer can. Like, okay. All right. So any Bioware people listening, stop. Just pretend that you didn't. You didn't hear any of this. Ignore, it, ignore the last <laughs> three minutes, four minutes of conversation, and be happy. Um. Yeah. The only other thing, really. So that's that's been the crazy thing that happened last week. Uh, kind of continuing to this week. The only thing really going on too is the um, Marvel uh, movie Endgame's coming up. Yeah, I think I'm actually going to see it in theater. I'm definitely going to see it in theaters. Do you have tickets already? We don't have tickets already. We do not have tickets either. I heard it broke the internet when it, when tickets went on sale. I'm actually really excited about it being a three-hour movie. It's a three-hour movie? It's a three-hour and one- or two-minute movie. There was some negative backlash against it. But when I go to the movie theater, I want to get maximum enjoyment out of this $15 ticket I just bought. Yeah. So I want to sit for as long as possible... Bask in the glory of the crazy special <laughs> effects in the movie that they've paid tons of money to produce for us. Oh, yeah. I go to Alamo. I want to have a few beers. If it's three hours instead of two hours, I'm having another beer. So that's nice. Oh, yeah, dude. Alamo get to relax. Yeah. Alamo so there's just a lot of really good vibes they get from a long movie, and I really appreciate it to the point where I'm just much more likely to go to a theater to see a three-hour movie versus a one-half-hour movie because I'm paying the same price. <laughs> I may as well get a little more value out of it. But, yeah, I mean, that... This is not a movie podcast, but uh, that does you are ignoring the fact that the quality in an hour and a half could be way more. Sure, than I, I factored that in. Okay, oh, you, okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to see a bad three hour movie just because it's three hours, <laughs> but if it is both, you know, both are the same level of quality, I'm certainly going to see the three hour yeah. movie. So what Aaron and I have been doing, and we know a couple friends have been doing this too. Um, we are currently rewatching every Marvel movie in chronological order. So oh I've map, seen a lot of people doing that. Yeah, that like a, a map got bounced around social media that kind of shows you, know, you start with Captain America, the first Avenger, you go to you actually watch Captain Marvel, then it's Iron Man, Iron Man Two, and then you know goes from there. Okay. Uh, so we've been doing that, and we just finished Avengers and Iron Man Three last night. So it's chronological order in the story, story, not yes. the release dates. Right. So okay. it's, it's chronological per the story. Okay. And uh, for the most part, are there a lot of big shifts from that? Not not too much. I say most of it is pretty consistent yeah. with the release dates. Like obviously Captain America, First Avenger, is way out right. line. Captain Marvel is obviously way out of right. line. Um, but outside of that, it's not too. I think too I think Guardians of Galaxy and Guardians of Galaxy Two are next to each other as opposed to split split up by. Um, I don't know something. Sure, I got you. Okay, so. 
that's probably like half the time of rewatching all of Game of Thrones to prepare for the season premiere of that, which is this weekend. Yeah, it is. It's Sunday. Are you going to watch it? Uh, we're going to be in Vegas. So, yes, I'm going what? to watch it, but probably not on Sunday. Can I hear about your Vegas trip next week? Definitely. I'll let you know how much money I made. Are you practicing your solitaire again? I'm practicing blackjack. I mean, not your solitaire. Pra- I'm practicing my blackjack. Your solitaire. <laughs> my play, solitaire blackjack. You play solitaire in Vegas, too. Sign <laughs> Yes. For money. You're making money. Yeah. I'm sure they have a solitaire game. Practicing of course your, they do. Your blackjack. Yeah. Black, practicing the blackjack. Make sure I got everything top of mind. There you go. So I'm excited about that. Um, all right. We'll talk about that one next week. So, yeah, that's that's kind of what's going on with me. Do you got anything else? No, that's it. I'm ready to dive into nostalgia land. Cool. We'll take a quick break. I'm going to get more coffee, because always. And uh, then we'll come back and talk about some bad news. All right. Be back soon. All right, so we're back talking about Fun. games that have come out in the 90s, kind of reliving some nostalgia. Wing Commander. Uh, John's Broken. Mega Man 3. <laughs> King's know. Quest 5. I don't know what's happening. The Secret of Monkey Island. And so, <laughs> these games Commander were King. great. We all love these games. <laughs> Wait, Railroad Tycoon? Uh, I don't care about that. Oh, Jeff and I It actually that. came out in 1990. 1990, yeah, we played the... Ed- oh, Jeff and I spent hours playing that one. I, um, did, I did not care for that game because, again, there was no killing people. <laughs> there was no point. Wait, here's Railroad Tycoon 2. All right, here we are. <laughs> yes, here we are. Sorry, so we're going to start. So here's how we're going to do this. We're just going to call the year. Chris, you heard him say 1990, I think. Uh, and we really couldn't find any games that really mattered to us that year. Yeah, the biggest game of that year. Just so we can have something for 1990, it's probably Super Mario World because it came with the Super Nintendo. So I did play it and I beat it and it was a good game, but... Commander Keen, jokes aside, I actually did play the hell out of that at Bobby's house. Yeah. Uh, I remember, actually, Rachel made me buy Commander Keen. It was on a Steam sale at some point. Really? I was like, hey, yeah, sure, I'll buy this for you. Because if she wants a video game, I'll do whatever to make her to get it to her. <laughs> Basically, that's how it works. That's great. Yeah, so I'm totally on board with that. So I bought it. She's never played it on my computer, so it's been a waste. But I did buy it. Uh, and F-Zero was a pretty fun game, yeah. as well as Razor. And so to put this in history, we are currently seven years old, no, six years old in 1990? Yeah, we're six years old in 1990. right? Yeah, I guess seven years old. So I was six. Yeah. Because yeah, we both turned. Six or whatever. Because I was, I was like beginning of 84, and you were the end of 83. Right? Yeah. Okay. So just making sure. So six years old. Yes. Yeah. We're, so anyways. Right, we're under seventh year of life at that point, but yeah, six years old. Like we're starting, Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> all right. So, <laughs> uh, so let's move on from 1990. Now we're moving to 1991, right. and we'll we'll stop at a few points. There are a few very vivid memories that I have for a number of these games. A lot of these played roles in how we play games now today. Yeah. But there are huge moments that I'm really excited to kind of share with everybody. Yeah, and and you know sometimes also like the first time seeing an entire genre right and the feeling of that so speaking of in 1991 okay so 1991 civilization the first one the very first one okay didn't play it uh you didn't play it at all no, i know came along with too which we'll get to but yeah, civilization one i remember distinctly again a lot of, this is at the time a lot of it was like you play games at your friend's house you go to your friend's house and he'd have a game that sure. you don't have right, right. Or your friend cool. would come to your house and you'd have a game he didn't have and so you just spend hours hanging out with your buddy or friends you know, playing playing through these games together. Even if they were single player games, we would sit there and play them just both playing, right? It was just a weird 
we're thinking. No, you were totally fine sitting there and watching your friend just do whatever they were doing, and they'd let you play and do whatever you were doing. You're like, this is just so cool because it doesn't exist. Yeah, it's like a new thing. And so I remember Mm -hmm. uh, a guy named Jonathan White. I would go to his house. uh, I remember him. him? Yeah, yeah. And he had a copy of Civilization. That was the first time I saw that genre, um, that game. It was the very first game of the series, and. Yeah, I remember thinking like this is super cool. This kind of blew my mind. I'm gonna well, say I'm gonna say that a lot. But while you were playing that, I played the game that I probably had the most vivid memory or vivid element of excitement and joy out of getting a game for the first time, which was Final Fantasy IV. Okay. It came out in '91, and I asked my dad uh, for it for my mom for either Christmas or birthday. It came out late in the year of '91, mm-hmm. and my birthday's in January, so it was one of those two time periods. It's like, this is the game I really want, and I got home from school one day, and there it was, and that's what I did for the rest of that day, and <laughs> I love the game. I remember the box art, I remember the cartridge, I remember putting it in for the Super Nintendo for the first time, and to this day, Final Fantasy IV is one of my favorite games, even though I think the gameplay is super antiquated at this point. I'm not a huge fan of JRPGs, but... Because of Final Fantasy IV primarily, mm-hmm. I still chase the high of JRPGs from time to time, <laughs> say, and I'm ultimately disappointed by almost all of them because I, again, think the classic style <laughs> JRPG is just an antiquated form of gameplay, it's just, it's and yet not... I can die. I've played Final Fantasy IV all the way through three times. Oh, wow. There are very few games, like less than five, that I've played through all the way multiple times. Right. So... I love this game. I love the characters. I know all the characters. I know all the elements of the story and when they happen. It's a great game in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I just had a lot of joy out of that. I also played uh, A Link to the Past came out in 91, oh. which is my favorite Zelda game. I never played, I, I think I mentioned this once before, but I've never really played any of the Zelda games. Yeah, I think we have talked about that before, about and I'm not going to beat you over the head about it like some other people would. Whatever, yeah, Zelda, Zelda's good, but it's, you know, it's Zelda. It's uh, a- I probably didn't play A Link to the Past until 92 or 93, I'm guessing, because okay. I wasn't hyped about a lot of games, yeah. which is why Final Fantasy IV was so notable for me, because I was so hyped about it for whatever reason, whether I read about it in a magazine or whatever the case was, I had to have this game. Was this your first JRPG? This is my first JRPG, at least that I remember. Okay, okay. Cool. And it later led to me playing, getting getting an NES. So I had an NES after an SNES, to, yep. so I could play Final Fantasy One because I was like, <laughs> surely everything is amazing, and it was fine. It was fine. There you go. Um, well, then that is that it for. 91? That's it. That's it for ninety one for me. All right. So one thing we've learned as we put this list out is like the later latter half of the decade is, is especially the last, actually the latter third is way heavier than the opening portions. So right. The part when you go through kind of fast. Well, actually not. I mean, games have just been growing. I take it back. Let's just let's slow down right now. So, 1992 is where we're at, right? I've got a good 92 story. I've got I've got a few. I don't really have any stories. I got a few games that definitely matter. But what do you got? For okay, games? so Street Fighter 2 oh, came yeah. out in the arcades in 91 and okay. for Super Nintendo in 92. So I'm crediting it as 92 because that's when I played it and that's when this story happened. Okay. So, <laughs> so Street Fighter 2. I was playing the last boss or whatever, and I kept losing and losing. And I yanked the game out while it was still in there and threw it across the room and hit the wall. It shattered into halves. And I, but I was luckily able to put it back together because it's just a chip in the middle, and that's yeah. the only part that matters. So that was protected by the case. So I was still able to play the game. But that was my first rage element that I can your recall. First, was that your first rage quit? I think that was my first rage quit. <laughs> I just yanked the damn thing out and threw it as hard as I could across the room. I remember exactly where it hit in my room, too. It was about, it was actually only probably about five feet away from a window, is where it hit. 
uh, Foley had gone to the window. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, that was that was my vivid memory of '92. Speaking of Fido games, that's the year that Mortal Kombat came out, uh, and I remember that one because again, going back to the hang out your friends, that was one of those games. It's the first time I think they used like photorealism in the game because they like. If I remember correctly, the way they got these, they did the animations, they actually, like, had people dress up as the characters and, like... They did have a more realistic look yeah. than Street Fighter 2. And blood everywhere. And lots and of blood. Which is only gory. Increased yeah. over the years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was, so Mortal Kombat came out, which was amazing. I remember that was super fun because it was all about trying to figure out what the uh, finishing moves were. And it, you couldn't just look them up on the internet. So it was all this like secret, like trying to discover it, talking to your friends, writing things down. Like, if you do this, 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 and this, when it says that, if you're standing this close to the character, you'll rip his spine out. Which <laughs> <laughs> is so crazy for the time. Yeah. And now Mortal Kombat 11 is coming out in oh, like crazy. two weeks. Yeah. And we're, and, and we're playing Mortal Kombat 2, and we're, uh, if we were, you know, what does that make? Six, seven, eight years old? Definitely appropriate for an eight-year-old. Super appropriate. <laughs> totally appropriate. <laughs> to be fair, there's a lot less blood back then than there is now. If you play a match of Mortal Kombat 11, it probably has more blood than every match of Mortal Kombat you've ever had. Dude, it makes, it's me, absurd. Feel, it makes me feel a little queasy. Let's it is, actually. Yep. Um, but yeah, so but that's, you know, that kind of raises up another point that we realized later on is that I think at the time, they people didn't really know, although Mortal Kombat was part of what started this, I believe, people didn't really know just how violent inappropriate when video games were for kids. Right. They were still looking at video games as a toy for children. I think Mortal Kombat is the reason the ESRB exists. I think you might be right. I'm pretty sure. It might be Mortal Kombat 2, but that series is why they created that organization. And, and honestly, a reoccurring theme on a lot of these is going to be um, playing with your friends, right? And so another one that sure. came out that year was Mario Kart. That was a big one. Right, we played a lot of that. We did. But then I've got a story uh, about a certain game called Wolfenstein 3D. <laughs> okay. This is my very first pirating experience. <laughs> so, this is notable. Yeah. So in 1992, Wolfenstein 3D gets released um, out of a, by John Carmack, ID Studio, mm -hmm. ID Studios. Right, ID Studios. Uh, here in Texas. And we uh, the first episode was uh, Shareware. Which I don't think that's a term that exists anymore. Nope. But it meant like you could just share. Yeah, things that mean the 90s video game players. <laughs> yeah, share sure yeah. And so uh, I remember playing it over and over and I was having so much fun with it. And then there was a, a friend at school who uh, gave me a floppy drive with all of the episodes on it, which you would have to pay for normally. But you just had them all of a sudden. I suddenly and had them. You didn't them pay all. for them. So he hands it to me. And I, I've, now I've got. <laughs> he said, yo, ho, ho. Bottle of rum. Oh, that's where you're yeah, So then I take it home, uh, plug it in, sure enough, I have access to the in, the entire thing now. And uh, super fun. I spent endless hours running around Wolfenstein 3D. Try, you, know, you, run, you basically run down the, the walls spamming spacebar, trying to find all the secret doors. Sure. Because that's how I did I, it. Yeah, right. And, I remember uh, that from the dinner, or the shareware. Yeah, the shareware. Me. Sorry. I don't want to misuse the name. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that was my first pirating experience, 1992. <laughs> Uh, I was in elementary school. And Did you feel any remorse at the time? Not in the slightest. That's fine. I think that closes out 92. So, well, for you. Oh, you still got more. Okay. I've got Ultima 7. Oh. So I played a lot of this. Uh, Wait, with, that was 1992? It was 1992. I know. It was pretty crazy. Wow. I don't think I actually played it until probably 94 or 95. But that's when it came out. I remember playing it at Bobby Hall's house. As do I. Yeah. That game absolutely changed how open worlds could look. Yeah. Everything was accessible. You could interact with basically everything in the yep. game. And to this day, it's still one of the most free-form open worlds that exist. 
it's really hard to play for a lot of reasons, and it's very simplistic in a lot of ways, but just the open feeling that you got from exploring the world. I put so many hours into it, and I don't think I ever progressed the main story. I don't even know what the story is. It didn't matter. All that matters <laughs> is that I could bake bread and go get on the carpet, fly around, get some treasure chests, find some crazy hidden cave, explore the ruins there, and then get out and die. Yeah. Be, uh, some crazy giant ogre or whatever. I don't recall ever ever even trying to progress the story. No, I think you had to to get out of the town, out of the first town, and then after that you're like, this is dumb, I don't care about the story. <laughs> and then the guy saying, uh, Avatar, the Guardian is the main villain. Yeah. I remember him showing up on the screen. I also played Dune 2, which is just noteworthy, because that was my first RTS yeah. experience, and I, I really enjoyed playing through the campaigns of it. And I think my first RTS experience is coming up pretty quick here. Yep, so I'm ready for 93. 93, all right. So... There's a couple here. This there's one of my one of my all-time formative games was released in 1993. Before we get to that, I do want to do a quick mention to Stronghold. It's a not not the one out in 98-99. Right. The Dungeon and Dragon city building. The superior version of Stronghold. <laughs> yeah. Classic superior. Released in 1993. I only bring it because this is a game that Chris and I we would spend hours playing. Uh, another single-player game that we would just sit there in that tiny computer room you had. Uh, which also had a bed in it, I think. <laughs> it did have a bed so in it. it like, might, the bed might have come later. Okay. But there was a bed in it at some point. Very small room right. where we spent all our time playing. <laughs> it was fantastic. Yeah, super fun. Stronghold is so good. Yeah, it was D&D, but you build a city and you attack things. It's so fun. Yeah. I don't yeah. know why that doesn't, it doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, I'm scanning my... I'm saving this last one for this. Let's see here. Don't any others. No, I don't. So 93. Okay. Okay. Oh. Well, let me, let me get to it. Oh, you got one? I think it's the same one for me, but so I'm going to get to the basic one, which is Dark Sun Shattered Lands. I don't know that one. So it was an RPG. It's a D&D RPG, and it was sort of the, for me, the first Baldur's Gate game. So it wasn't real-time with pause like Baldur's Gate, mm-hmm. but it was you have a party, you have this world that you're going and exploring, you have a lot of options, you have a million different classes for your characters, and it's built on D&D, but in the Dark Sun universe. And it's a fun game to play, and to this day still does a few things differently than other games do, just in terms of uh, story choice. There's kind of a non-linear element for how you progress through certain quests that add some replayability to the game and also add flavor to how you're role-playing the game. Because a lot of these RPGs, there's no actual role-playing. It's You're just a character seeing a story, and those become synonymous with just progression and story. But this actually had role-playing elements to the game that I found enjoyable. And it's also notable because I, this whole company, Strategic Simulations, Inc., I just remember from the early 90s putting out like these gold box RPGs like Full of Radiance and, and Ravenloft. And there's like these games that are okay, yeah. but I just loved them at the time. They were absolutely fabulous. And a lot of it's just because that's what existed back then. So that was probably the most notable company for me of that era was SSI. Yeah. And they died in 1994. <laughs> they didn't even last the whole 90s. Yikes. But, uh, so yeah. All and right. then what was the game you were going to talk about? Oh, this one, uh, SimCity 2000. Okay, it is uh, different than what I was going to bring up. Oh, okay. Well, this one, so SimCity 2000, I was not a SimCity player. I knew of the game. I played it at a friend's house briefly. If SimCity 2000 comes out, I get a copy of this game. Uh, and I proceed to sink, like, my entire life into SimCity 2000. I, I remember coming over and you played it. We were just, like, playing it I, frequently. And I was like, just summon a hurricane. That's all I want to see. <laughs> SimCity 2000 struck a chord with me as a kid. I... I can't, it spoke to me on some level of just like, I, I don't know what to, I mean, I don't say it. I love the organization, the construction, the building, 
trying to maximize, you know, those ar uh, archipelagos, what they're called. Yeah, yeah. archipelago, the, the arcs. islands. Yeah, so you basically put the arcs in, then a police station, you make a grid of like four arcs and a police station in the middle, because the crime is ridiculous in the arcs. <laughs> okay. And, and just trying to max out everything you could. It took me a long, you know, I used to use cheat codes, it took me a while as a kid to kind of get the hang of actually making money in the game and not like just typing in cheat codes to get ahead. Um, yeah, super fun. I mean, that was that. So the reason why I bring it up is because I played SimCity 2000 constantly until the release of SimCity 4, which I played constantly until the release of SimCity 4 Rush Hour, which I played constantly until, uh, which I think we have spoken about the podcast last year, SimCity, uh, the new iteration, the total bullshit online only my crap best. But you stuck with the series forever. Yeah, no, I know. I basically, SimCity 2000 came out, I got it, and I never stop playing it. That's why companies make sequels to games. Yep. And I have a lot of people like that for a lot. And I'm the same way with a lot of different <laughs> that we're going to get into a little yeah, bit later. Yeah. But it, and, and again, you know, when SimCity came out, it, it betrayed the soul of the game. I actually switched over to, switched over to uh, City Skylines. So I felt like that was a spiritual successor to SimCity for Rush Hour. Now that there's any yeah. game studios, we can actually get the games of our childhood made for today. Yeah, which are good. Mm -hmm. All right. Good. Let's, so, let's, I can't believe you didn't bring up Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Oh, well, I, I didn't because I thought you were going to bring it up. Oh, that's what I thought you were going to say because <laughs> I didn't know SimCity came out then. So Romance of the yeah, Three Kingdoms yeah. 3 was uh, 1993, and John, me, and Jeff, we played this game like crazy and it was a yeah. game that we could actually play together because right. it was turn-based right so everyone had their character their their empire and you would go and you take a turn and you get the control of the next person and they would take their turn and so on yeah and everyone's making their own little empire we're all probably in different parts of the world so we're not fighting each other yeah. or something we started and we would, cow cow and it took me 20 years to realize we were mispronouncing it right <laughs> yes, it took a long time to realize we were wrong about all of these names because we're pronoun pronouncing them with english we were also um, nine years old at the time <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't feel bad about it it's fine but that's what we were doing and we probably never finished a game of this no i can't imagine because finishing even a game by yourself i mean it's like a civilization yeah. length game you're playing constantly and this one had a big impact because i believe you and i both have copies of Romance of Three Kingdoms books. This game has so yeah. much impact, I feel like, on our lives. So, we are, not only do we have the books, I actually tried to make a board game out of that. it. Yep. And we played it probably once. It was probably terrible. I had it in a green folder. This is how much I remember. It was in a green folder. <laughs> I, I put it in the little like binder things. Yeah, you know those folders where you can put paper in with the little binder snaps uh, or whatever they're called? And so we put that in there. It was however many pages, like maybe a couple dozen pages long of handwritten game notes. <laughs> not like printing anything out at this time. And we tried to play it. And it was, whatever, I'm sure it was terrible. Because I was a nine-year-old making a board game. And that's hard enough as a 35-year-old has seen a million <laughs> games at this point. And so we, we played that. But yeah, like you said, we have books for Master of the Three Kingdoms. You play the shit on Dynasty Wars, Dynasty Wars, which is the same world. Part of the reason why I love Dynasty Wars so much is because it's Romance of the Three Kingdoms. And it's I, a throwback to... And I've bought Dynasty Warriors 4, 9, and 11, I believe, over the years. You bought Dynasty Warriors 9? Yeah. No, no, they've only come up to 9. No, they're at 13 or 14. I think they're at 13 now. Well, I just bought Dynasty Warriors. No, no, Romance. Romance, Romance of the Three Kingdoms okay. is up to 13 or 14. So, Romance of the Three Kingdoms 9 is actually pretty good. It was like a real-time version of the whole game. Oh, well. So, that was probably the most unique. Anyway, so Romance, everything about that really put a lot of emphasis on a lot of the games I like, and that was my first foray really into strategic gaming, like really hardcore just strategy playing. Right. So, and empire building. Yeah, that's got to be mentioned. So, I didn't mention this. I thought you were going to mention it. Gotcha. So, yeah, the, like you said, the element of playing with your friends and 
getting into a genre for the first time, all of that gets wrapped up in Romance of the Three Kingdoms 3. And now I'm going to bring us into 1994. Please do. Through a segue of Madden 1993 into Madden 1994. <laughs> this is the beginning of these Madden games. This is a, I had them for Sega Genesis. And this was uh, another like uh, experience like where you could play against your friend. And my friends all in the neighborhood, we all had Madden, and we played it obsessively. And this is certainly like a decade before you know Madden became a big... Before Madden was Madden. Yeah, before Madden was Madden. This is just when it was still just a you know quick branded uh, football sim, which is fun. Um, that's Madden ninety three ninety four. But we are in the year of nineteen ninety four now. Uh, do you have any games for that? One game, which is the best Elder Scrolls ever made. Okay. The original. <laughs> All right. Relative to the time that it came out, you had an open world where everything was just procedurally generated. It's the first game I think where they had procedural generation in a game. Okay. And it, the whole world was just absolutely expansive and mind blowing. It was all just the same shit repeated over and over. There was nothing to the game other than generic quests and generic plot lines and generic dungeons. But that was so cool at the time because it was just so absolutely massive. You got to create your character create anything that you wanted it, and since then, Elder Scrolls has done absolutely nothing to innovate the game, <laughs> other than add better graphics. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's it. Hey, if it works, it like, works. Even when they try to add elements of handcrafted content, it's still garbage. <laughs> they don't know how to make handcrafted content, so why did they ever get away from the procedural generation? They should have just kept making that better. I hate that series. <laughs> anyway, but in 94, this game was awesome. All right. I do have one other story for 94. Okay. Um, this was my first exposure to this genre, uh, and I was actually visiting my grandparents in Alabama. Uh, so my, my mom's side of the family comes from a small town in northern Alabama, so I was out there, and there's a kid who lived next door who I'd play with whenever I was in visiting my grandparents, and I went over one day, and he's like, hey, man, check out this new game I got. I was like, what are you, what's it called? It's called it says Warcraft. If you haven't heard of Warcraft, it's made by Blizzard. <laughs> oh, uh, Warcraft, yeah. Oh, that game. It later spawned uh, Warcraft 2, Starcraft, Starcraft 2, uh, World of Warcraft, which is kind of an important game. Hearthstone. Hearthstone, yeah. Uh, it, it kind of helped put yeah, Blizzard... Blizzard further. may exist because of this game. <laughs> yeah, it may exist because of this game. Um, so Warcraft, and I remember uh, Orcs vs. Humans, and we were watching it. I had never seen gameplay like that before. Uh, the concept of resources, building, expansion, fighting... Uh, and I had a blast playing it, and got back to, got back from Alabama and had to get a copy of the game because uh, it was just so much fun. I played it also, but it was a game that I just played. It was fun. Yeah, it was surprising yeah. when you saw it because, like, for me, it was a first, I think it was a, I'm looking back at my list. I think that was the first time I was really exposed to that uh, like gameplay style. So Doom Two was my first foray into That's that, right. and that came earlier for me. Which and is the I liked Doom Two more, I think. And what is that? The, what genre is it? The Four X or no RTS? That's right. Four X is like Civ and That's kind right. of the Three yeah, Kingdoms. Got resource management now. So yeah, Warcraft uh, was my first RTS game, mm -hmm. and I just remember loving it. Right. Uh, anything else for you in '94? No, but in '95, Warcraft uh, Two came out, <laughs> and then 1995, Warcraft Two comes out. <laughs> and I did play that more. I think Warcraft Two was the first game that elevated it to the next stage. I mean, not that there were a lot of games at the time, Yeah. but Warcraft 2 kind of took it to the next level with just how good the story was, which was weird in an RTS, not something that you... Yeah. I don't know, I was expecting. I was like, RPGs have stories, cool, in my brain. And now I'm like, whoa, RTS games can't have it too. And it was funny. And it was funny. Yeah, yeah. they added a lot of humor. You'd click on things. Stop and, clicking, man. Right, stop touching me. Yeah. Uh, it was... Warcraft 2 was awesome. That definitely was uh, 
a game that consumed a lot of hours of my life. Right, and I, you could play it online too. It was a little jank, but I did play a few online games of it. Yeah, that's like an early part of like this multiplayer experience, which really starts blowing up a little bit later, later in, this, mm-hmm. in the decade. Yeah, um, 1995. Otherwise, was was not a big year for me. I mean, I was playing Madden '95. I was playing Warcraft II. I was still playing SimCity. The other notable game was Suikoden. So Suikoden comes out, and it was notable because there were 108 characters <laughs> in the game. That's really all that matters. There's 108 characters. And it was a pretty good game, but the sequel is what really matters. Which, I'll get into uh, that later. What kind of genre was that? It's an art. It's a JRPG. JRPG. Okay. Yeah, it's a JRPG. So there's also an element of you're creating your own army and you're going to war and your little rebellion yeah. instead of just leading the rebellion as a four-man party somehow saving the world. You're actually leading armies of thousands of troops, and in addition, recording recruiting a hundred people to help you kind of build your empire. Okay. So it kind of adds a little bit of innovation to the JRPG genre. Uh, that's uh, yeah. Anything else for '95? You do. <laughs> All right. There's this game called Anvil of Dawn. It's not a good game. <laughs> okay. but I played it a lot, and for some reason, it's just like one of the first games that come into my head. <laughs> I don't know. That's all we need to talk about with that. So let's go to 96. All right, let's go to 96. Uh, 1996 saw the release of a very important game to a lot of us, Civilization II. And so I mentioned Civilization earlier from 1991. Civilization II, Civilization II, excuse me, was the first Civ game I think we all got. And really, that's like when we started playing Civilization. Civ 2 is when I started Civilization. Yeah. And must have played a dozen campaigns of that game over the years. I mean, it was super, super fun. Yeah, I mean, you get to build your empire from scratch. We all It's another game that we all played. You, me, and Jeff all yep. played the crap out of that game. And yeah. part of that, I mean, I think was maybe influenced by Romance of the Three Kingdoms to some degree. Because it is a strategy game. Yeah. We might have still played it. And, and all of that, because, yeah, it was a great game that consumed a lot of people's lives. Yeah. But I think there's some element of both of those games that are kind of tied together, at least for me, inextricably yeah. for all time. Like those are the first two vivid memories of strat- just pure strategy. Yeah. And that also impacts probably how I play board games today. I mean, I totally don't shy away from complexity in board games. And that's because Civ 2 and Romance of the Three Kingdoms were pretty damn complex, especially for... Uh, what were we, like 10 year olds at this time? Well, uh, 96. We 96, so 12 year olds at this time? Yeah. Still pretty complex, I think, for a 12 yeah. year old. Yeah. Um, that's, 96 was kind of an empty year for me still. I think maybe I spent it all playing. Just it too. I yeah. mean, that's definitely the highlight. For me, the other game that came out in 96, uh, well, two. One. Uh, oh, I did it one more, I'm sorry. Okay. One is Pokemon Red Blue came out then. <laughs> and that was that is what I most remember using a handheld device for. To yeah. this day, I spent more time on Pokemon than any other handheld You're game. Right. I did buy, I think this is the, the Slimmer Game Boy. Mm-hmm. I bought one of those so I could play Pokemon. I think Red is the one I, I got. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So those, and you got to share your Pokemon with other people. Uh, that was kind of a cool element. There were, friends at school that you could share Pokemon with and trade them or fight each other's Pokemon. So it has this new social element to gaming yeah. that had previously been restricted to just playing at people's houses. Right. But now you, you have video gaming on the go that you can kind of do this multiplayer engagement with. Uh, I also played a lot of Guardian Heroes, which came out in 96. It, it's this like uh, side-scrolling brawler game, kind of reminiscent of, I don't know, like a Double Dragon or something. Okay. But it was an RPG sort of game. You got to level up as you progressed through the game. The combat had a lot of different character styles to, to kind of play around with. So you're like a mage or a big sword guy or an undead dude or whatever. And then you could play multiplayer where you got to be a dragon. That was fucking awesome because you got to be a dragon. And you're like, haha, guys, I'm a dragon. You lose. This isn't balanced <laughs> at all. But it was fun. And so and then everyone's a dragon. <laughs> there you go. 
Uh, Diablo is just also noteworthy that it came out in 1996. Oh, yeah. Like, this is when Blizzard is just blowing up. That's right. Like, Blizzard is just dominating everything, and it makes sense, because right. over the course of four years, they just destroy the industry. We'll get Warcraft, Warcraft 2, and Starcraft's Diablo, coming up later. Starcraft's coming up, and then they fall Starcraft 2. I mean, it's just, it's a... Everything blows up. Yeah, it really does. There was one other game I want to mention, um, just because it sparked... It was my first... Uh, so I'd played some like space-oriented games, um, some sci-fi aspects, like Wing Commander was there. Um, start, there's a few Star Wars-branded games that have come out. Uh, but Master of Orion 2. Um, sure. This game, I remember, as another one of those where it's a, you, I, I saw the Starfield, and you're like, wait, I, the entire universe? I could play in this and build a... You know, and I was already in Civilization 2, right? But it was like kind of that taken into space. Right, you get to launch your ship in Civilization. Now you get to do the ship stuff. Yeah, out in the space and the you know. And I love the sci-fi aspect. I love the empire building and, and the combat was was fun. I just loved how you look at that star map and it just that was something new. It's it just a new thing for me, and it spoke to my love of sci-fi at that age, and which I still do love sci-fi. But cool, uh, that was the first time I ever saw a game kind of hanging out in that in that uh, in that really that kind of environment. Okay. Uh, so that was super cool. Yeah, oh, Master of Ryan is cool. I didn't play it a lot, but I do remember the game coming up. But why don't we take a break right now? I think it seems like a pretty good time. We're about to get to the end of the 90s, which yeah. is going to kind of explode. For some reason, 97, 98, 99 have the bulk of games. Right. Either because that's when gaming suddenly got really, really good, or more likely we got to high school. and I've got a few exciting stories. I've got a few here. They're coming up. Great. All right. We'll be back in a minute. So 1997, 1997. Comes along. Here it is. We are. We're 13 now. 13 years old. Welcome to us being teenagers. We're thinking, oh, we are at the top of the food chain now in middle school. That's right. And it's God, great. I, I hated middle school so much. Yeah, it's actually not great because we're still in middle school. Yeah. It's just less awful. Right. Middle school is the worst. It really was. But luckily, Total Annihilation came out in 1997. <laughs> Total Annihilation came out, yeah. And we had like. A thousand units on the screen at one time. A few other games came out too, but yes, Total Annihilation. This is crazy. This is one of those games that was just crazy. That's the most notable aspect yeah. of this game, is how crazy it was. I don't know if it was balanced in any way, shape, or form. It didn't matter. But it was so fun to see so much insanity on the screen at once. Yeah. And it opened up the entire scope of video gaming. Just not, not only in terms of reality, but in terms of our imagination. Yeah, it made you realize, just having so many units and combat, everything just exploding and destroying each other, all being you know simulated in real time as you're controlling it, uh, that was a new thing. It's a, it's, and that's, that's kind of set, set the bar. It's like, oh, wait, this is possible. And I would say that aspect influenced the enjoyment of games like Total War. Yeah. Even. Oh, yes, right? absolutely. When you, like, that was the cool part of Total War, Cause now is... There's millions of units on the screen. This is amazing. Yeah, because now when I play these those kind of games, I'm like, wait, how many units can I put on? Right. Can I have it once? Right. Because so. is it is it better than the 1997 game that came out? Because right. if not, okay, uh, I don't know. I need to have tons of units. Like huge battles need to be taking place. Uh, if not, I mean, eh, totally. Yeah, what, what are you doing with your life? Yeah, right. I'll just go back. <laughs> I'll go back and install this old game. Um, another big game came out in 1997 uh, called Final Fantasy VII. 
Oh, uh, this was a very, very hyped game. Um, it was pretty big. In fact, the first couple games that I was ever actually got hyped about came out in 1997. This was one of them. I actually bought a used PlayStation from the guy who first showed me Civilization in 1991. Uh, I bought his PlayStation. And I then uh, got a copy of Final Fantasy VII. I remember it's like hooking up in my bedroom and starting starting that that road, starting that <laughs> very long journey. Yeah. Final Fantasy VII is the first game that I remember a lot of pre-release hype for. Right. From everybody. So this game came out pretty early in the PlayStation One lifespan. Right. And I remember there was like a demo of it included with one of the earlier games. I think with Parasite Eve, maybe. I think that game came out in 96, and I think it had a demo of Final Fantasy VII. It, there was a game that had a demo of Final Fantasy VII. Right. And then there's the big, like, crazy death scene that happens. and Oh, yeah. The full motion videos that are included with the game that look horrible now because they're all... I was going to mention, at the time, I remember thinking, the graphics are amazing. This and, looks amazing. And, and it was the first transition to polygons for the and, series. Yeah, and now we look back on it, it's just like, oof. And why are there blocks on their head? Yeah. <laughs> But, um, yeah, the story, uh, having, like, characters die in story, and, and the, uh, that was a new thing. Well, not a new thing, but that was just a, it was one of, the, one of the earlier times I remember really caring about the narrative of what was happening. Right, me too. And it was the first game that took Square out of a heavy niche. They really were dominating JRPGs, right. but then put them on the map globally, where JRPGs weren't nerdy for gamers now it's just gamer nerdy which is fine yeah right you know like it's kind of going up the chain of socialization and acceptability <laughs> yeah. to the point where now video games are just fine yeah but at the time if you played video games you were interested in final fantasy 7 right that's kind of how, how so final fantasy 7 did a lot for that the other game that i got very very hyped about uh and this was because i remember i was sitting in uh i was in i was in the tech crew for the theater in middle school that's how cool i was because uh, I had no interest in being on stage, but I liked they, they let us play with like light boards and you know the spotlights and that. Sure. So I, was, I thought that was cool. Yeah, speaking about nerdy stuff. Yeah. At the time, they were like totally into. Yeah. Right. So I remember we were sitting there, and a guy sitting next to me has this uh, strategy guide, and on the front is a big U and an O, and it says <laughs> Ultima Online. I was like, "What is this?" And he's like, "Oh, check it out." And so I started reading it. I'm not, of course, I'm not paying any attention to anything happening in class. Um, I said, hey, <laughs> Which is not unusual for us. Yeah, and I asked, like, can I take it home? And he actually let me take it home that night. I do not remember what his name was, but he let me take it home. I spent the night reading it. I got back to school. And I was like, I get back to him. And I'm like, I'm getting this game. Because I'd never, this is the, I mean, I'd played, um, like, Terra, it was a Terrace, I think. Like, the, this is the, uh, uh, the Muds. The Muds, yeah. Yeah, and Gemstone. Gemstone, yes. We played a lot of those games. I was familiar with, like, the idea of, like, a text based multiplayer, massively multiplayer game. Right. Um, but this was the first graphical, uh, massively multiplayer online RPG uh, that I was aware of. Sure. Uh, this was my first one. And the concept of, like, playing in a world that's filled with other people all trying to level characters in different ways, building an economy that interacts and, and fighting creatures and going on adventures and building towns. And that just, you know, for 13-year-old brain, John, uh, was fantastic. So I, I also remember coming to your house after you had the game. I think we've even had this conversation here. But I just remember you mining ore and yep. being blown away. <laughs> it's, like, absurd, but I was yeah. like, what, you're mining ore? That you can use to craft your own gear 
yeah. then people can attack you and take it away, or you can do the same thing to them. Or sell it. And, or sell it, or there's like merchant. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, right? Like, like it wasn't just... Like, that would be cool in a single-player game. And it was a multiplayer game, so it was yeah. like the next level. Like, somehow this game just came out almost way ahead of its time. Yeah, way ahead. And it just... In that that chaos aspect, because it's like you kill people in town. There was no safe. There's no nowhere safe, right? Yeah. Well, so if you kill someone in town, the guards would immediately kill you. So it's sort of safe. But that, that's a cool way to handle. But it is a cool way to handle. Yeah. It. Absolutely. Yeah. You're right. Nothing was really ever off limits. Their game was always just, so freeform. There were consequences. There were just consequences for actions. And I also loved the uh, skill tree system because there was no like you didn't get shoehorned into a class which set what skills you could learn. It was you can technically learn everything. It's a matter of where, how do you want to invest your time. Right. No, that, I, I also think Ultima Online is interesting because it was one of the defining points, I think, in gaming that separated what was previously, <coughs> everyone was sort of a hardcore gamer. Like, we yeah. remember, you know, con, like Contra-style games, where all these games were just tough as nails to get through. And that persisted through a lot of the 90s. All these games were either challenging or kind of middling challenging. But then... Ultima Online was also a challenging game because you could be killed anywhere, and eventually yeah. the game split into a world where you could kill everyone at every time, or you, there's no combat at all unless everyone agrees to it. Yeah. And I think that was one of the first splits of like sort of the more I don't know I just want to come home and relax type gaming, and the app, the other gamers were like I want everything to be hardcore all the time. And this is definitely still in the PC. We're being hardcore PC gamers at this time. So, right, all the PC yeah. games are still pretty hardcore, and they're not necessarily intuitive to pick up, because it said, well, if you really want to play this game, you'll figure it out. <laughs> right, usability wasn't really a thing necessarily at the time. Yeah, so Ultima Online uh, spent a lot of time with that one. We've definitely talked about that uh, multiple times in the past. Um, another big game, which has has a had a massive, massive impact to t- t- through today, and, and will probably continue to for a long time, um, was a mod created by... Uh, Min Lee, and I think his 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 was it Goose, Goose something. I don't know. Min Lee, anyways, a Canadian Vietnamese developer um, created a mod called Navy Seals for uh, Quake One, I believe. Okay. And then he created a mod for Quake Two called Action Quake Two. This came out in 1997. I bring it, I bring it up uh, because I played Action Quake Two. And remember, this was the first um, consistently online multiplayer FPS that I got really good at. Okay. Um, that's why I bring it up because I remember playing and and you know, I'd played FPSs before, sure, but um, not many of them had a whole lot of like a had a heavy multiplayer element. Uh, like Quake did, Quake Two did, and so it's my first forays into like multiplayer competitive FPS. FPS. Right. And Action Quake Two was the first time I got really good at something, so I was like consistently dominating every match, and it just felt cool. So, for, so you you got that fix. That was the first time I got like my. Oh, that's what it feels like to like kick everybody's ass over and over again. Like, okay, so that kind of got me addicted to that kind of combat. Um, the reason why I say Action Quake Two had such a big impact on the next few decades is because that same developer then created Counter Strike. That's a pretty big game. Probably, I think I've heard of it. Probably heard of Counter Strike. It, it might always be one of the top three most right. played games on Steam. Yeah, maybe. yeah. And so he created. So Half Life is going to come up uh, next year in our conversation. Um, but at the moment, that's that's going to come up also. But for the moment, we're talking about Ash Quake 2. Uh, yeah, first time I got really, really good at a game and and started look, I was seeking that out. I still was just dabbling in FPS at this point. The FPS didn't come on really for me until the early 2000s, which will be influenced by another game in a few years. 
Exactly. Which is not an FPS, funny enough. Oh, okay. So, but we'll get into that. Well, there was one other FPS that came out that year. With the exception of this GoldenEye. GoldenEye, which has a special place in everybody's so, heart right. in the 90s. And, yeah, the FPS element of this isn't what I think of when I think of FPS on a PC. Because PC, I want to be the best amongst this group of strangers in the world, right? I want these games, and I want to kill strangers. But... GoldenEye is the best among your friends, which is a completely different vibe. Yeah. And the other element of it that was cool, we all played about the same amount, so everyone was about the same skill level. We all always played together. We always played together. Yeah. So everyone's playing, because you're like, I don't care about playing this game solo, it's not fun. And when you're getting a group of friends together, well, you're going to get four people together to play this game, or five people, and rotate out somebody. Yeah. So we're all playing GoldenEye together, and we always had competitive matches. Which nowadays is very difficult because everyone just has different schedules and different interests and there's different games that are popular. But Goldeneye was the only game that was worth playing as a group at that point. And it was also, uh, I remember being one of the first like FPS multiplayer games where like didn't give a shit about the single player experience. There was a single player story <laughs> there. Never like t never touched it. Didn't I care. no. I yeah. I didn't have a Nintendo 64 until a lot later. I think we played it. Just like, even Quake Two. Quake Two still had a story. Um, you could play the game Quake 2. I did, and I, oh, I enjoyed did. it. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Quake 3 abandoned the story. There was, no, there was just multiplayer pure, right? And like, right. But GoldenEye, looking at that one, that was one of the first games I can remember where like, they built a game, and then they added this multiplayer component, and we all just ignored the game and just played the multiplayer. I think you had to play the single player, though, to get some of the multiplayer elements unlocked. So, so maybe somebody, whoever owned the game, did that. must have done it for us, yeah. Right. And yeah, I, remember, I didn't care about it. It was super fun because you could do things like all proxy mines. Just, oh, yeah, that so was you, a blast. You could adjust, and that was kind of neat, too, is you could adjust the parameters of the match to, you know, fill, as we got bored with, like, the normal way of playing it, we shake it up and now it's only proxy mines or only throwing dice. Right, you had so many different options. Yeah. It's not just the same gameplay over and over again. Right. Uh, I also played one other game in 1997 called Final Fantasy Tactics which I can't believe came out the same year as Final Fantasy 7. Yeah. And I think Final Fantasy Tactics is a better game nowadays. I mean Final Fantasy Tactics is still perhaps the best tactics like Japanese tactics game that's available. Still. Still, yeah because... 20, every, 21 years. I know but... 22 years. The game is still really exceptional when it comes to both all of its story, some of its characters, the progression in the game. I feel like, for me, it's another one of those games that hits that point of, are you more of a hardcore gamer or more of a casual gamer? And both of those are kind of like stretched out a little bit too much. The game is just a little challenging, but you can get through it with not too much grinding if you play it strategically, but there's a lot of grinding if you don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and depending on whether or not you play the game well, you'll have a different opinion of it because some people do complain about it being too grind-heavy. But I thought it was perfect. Like, there's a little tiny amount of grinding, and I thought it was definitely a great game. <laughs> and so I saw it as a special place in my heart for that and because of the job class system. That's the big element that has persisted throughout the years is you can put your make your character a black mage or a knight or a samurai or a calculator wizard person. <laughs> like, all these crazy classes that are in the game, right. and you're choosing how you want to outfit your group of five or six people or whatever, and combine them into a cohesive strategy. Yeah. So I found that very fun from a role-playing perspective and a strategy perspective. That came out the first time. Cool. Uh, it also actually led to me, one other thing. Okay, 97 still? Sort of. Okay. Uh, so that game kind of led to me wanting to play more of these style of games. And so I thought, until now, that this game called Vandal Hearts came out after Final Fantasy Tactics. Okay. 
and it's kind of a similar rendition on it. Can't say I've ever heard of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a same style of game. So I played it a year or so after Tactics, but it actually came out in '96, the year before. Oh. So until now, I thought the game was had come out after Final Fantasy Tactics. <laughs> Battle Hearts isn't super noteworthy of a game, right. but I just remember because I remember Tactics. Like the game is so important that I remember other games I played because of it. Okay. And now I'm good for '98. All right. Let's talk 1998. So now we're in the second of the two most important years, I think, in gaming for the 90s. Uh, possibly for that, actually, the, that whole era, because there's a couple couple very, very important games that came out. Um, the first one, this is the one we've referenced in every single episode, and I've had you say this is certainly not a Baldur's Gate podcast, <laughs> but Baldur's Gate did come out in 1998. Uh, I don't even think we need to get into it. It's Baldur's Gate, baby. Everybody knows our love of that game. Baldur's Gate. Uh, it wasn't Baldur's Gate too, but it was Baldur's Gate. <laughs> Good enough. Uh, there's another game that came out, which also I have referenced a million times, I think. Uh, Fallout 2 came out in 1998. I still remember getting the game. Was, the computer was in my parents' house. My parents' room because we had not moved yet. So we were going to move. I think we moved that year. And I was going to go. So the computer was on my dad's desk in their bedroom. Um, big old box thing, you know, and uh, oh, I remember that location. Compact, sure. I think. I think it was a sure. compact computer. Uh, so I was back there playing it, and I had used I used the sound from the intro or, or one in an earlier episode. And I just remember that feeling uh, when it, it kicks off with that art style, which I had never seen before. That music, which I'd really never listened to before. I mean, it, that's part of where my, which is silly to say, part of where my interest in jazz. Started in Fallout 2 because of that how well that song was put in. Louis Armstrong's it's very interesting. On. Yeah, sure. Um, same it's reason why it's like the Tropica series introduced me to Cubana music. Now I love Cubana music. It's um, Yeah, it's so. But that that transition out of that song into the slaughter into that sound of war, war never changes. Um, especially as a kid, and like was it 1998? I'm I'm what 13, 14 years old. But no, 98 would have been 84. 90, so 14 years old. 14, yeah, 13, 14 years old. Freshman in high school. Freshman in high school, yeah. That's a, you know, that's a... It's a heavy statement. It's a heavy statement, yeah. Like, my, my horizons are expanding. and I'm exposing myself to a, a pretty intense and brutal post-apocalyptic world. There were a lot of things in that game uh, that I, you know, ex- like ideas that I was exposed to for the first time. Which is cool. Through I mean, that that's game, what yeah. games can do. Yeah. And uh, people at the time were just still looking at the Mortal Kombat's of the world and seeing blood and violence everywhere, but not realizing that there's profound social impact that could be imparted on people yeah. by games like Fallout 2. Yeah, I mean, it's it, yeah, you could be a terrible person in Fallout 2, but you, you were also forced to make a lot of very heavy ethical, moral choices. Like, are you, do you want to, you have the option of becoming a slaver or murdering the slavers and freeing the slaves, but you can play the game both ways. Right. You can save this town or not, and the game's like, we're not going to tell you what to do, you can still beat the game, but we're going to tell you the consequences of your actions. And there's consequences one way or the other. Yeah, and, and there's also, you get a lot of gray area, places that like, people who are not good or bad, they're just like, that's more real. It's a mix of like, both sides. Right. And, and it's interesting to think about that as an early... Foray into games like Witcher that came out later with moral great choices. Yeah. They wouldn't come out for another 15 years. Yeah, and Fallout 2 was doing that in 1998. And so again, so as a kid, as a 13, 14-year-old kid, uh, freshman in high school, you know, mind expanding and playing this game really had an impact. It's also one of the few games that I've played through beginning to end, I want to say like five times, six times over the years. 
It's more than I've ever played in a game. Yeah. It's Even like, more than my Hallowed Final Fantasy IV. Yeah. Well, Fallout 2 I don't think is as long as Final Fantasy IV, I'm guessing. Yeah, Final Fantasy IV is probably like 30 hours, so it's actually yeah, no, it's comparable. You can, definitely, you can definitely sink some time into Fallout 2. Um, you, I've got two more, but what do you got? I've got two of my vivid memories. Okay. I'm going to get to uh, just a noteworthy one, which is Zelda Ocarina of Time. Okay. Uh, I played it and I liked it, but then I was like, eh, this isn't a link to the past. <laughs> so while everyone was like fawning over Ocarina of Time, I was like, this is a good game, but I just, the Super Nintendo one was better. So even then, I was like, back in my day, <laughs> five years ago, they made Zelda's way better than they used to. I don't know, this, this 3D garbage. Uh, what, and wasn't that still considered, isn't it still considered one of the best? Oh, uh, yeah, people. It's still, I think, the most highly rated yeah. Zelda game, but uh, I, I don't agree. Yeah, like this time, like I said, I was Sega Genesis and PC, so I didn't... I was an all Nintendo. I did have a Saturn at some point, which is how I played Guardian Heroes, but <laughs> I didn't care about anything else. So, the actual... I'll go my first one, uh, which is Xenogears. Okay. Xenogears is, uh, is atrocious combat nowadays. <laughs> like, it is way worse than any of the Final Fantasies. However, the story was the first time I got to experience a philosophically provocative story. <laughs> It, there's elements of religion and um, existentialism and uh, how people interact with one another, just like societal context with how, uh, I don't know, aliens, not aliens, but like people that are kind of unique to the world. So uh, how they are perceived by other characters and other robotic infrastructure. It's just all this different philosophical elements of right. the game. That kind of gets you thinking. You're talking about morality, you know, with with Fallout 2, and this is sort of a similar aspect of Xenogears. Uh, you don't get to make any choices necessarily, but it does present all of the different ideas and schools of thought behind it. So you have different characters representing different schools of thought in the game. It has a great cast of characters, and I remember going through the last dungeon at Bobby's house. We played, you know, a lot there. But I brought the game over. I was like, uh, yeah, I had to finish this game. <laughs> so I'll come over. I don't remember. Maybe, maybe he was like, yeah, I want to see the ending too. Or whatever the case was. But I, but I finished the game. I don't remember if I finished the game at his house, but I remember going through at least the last dungeon. Yeah. And I assume I finished it there as well. I just remember... So the last dungeon is very tunnel and boring and awful. But I remember just going through these tunnels, completely fixated on getting to that ending. And it was a it was a great ending, great game. The game was fantastic. Yeah, I feel like we should have had Jeff and Bobby here for this podcast. Yeah, right. There was a big element of both of them. Both of those games. Yeah. Um, another game that needs needs to be mentioned. Uh, Starcraft came out in 1998. Speaking yeah. of Blizzard, just just crushing it, uh, game after game. That's after my game. that's my last game. That's yours. So Starcraft. That was the first time I was exposed to this idea of like treating the treating space like the Wild West. Um, Star Wars had done it a little bit, but I mean, at this time I wasn't real. I'd seen it. And I was like, yeah, it's cool. I, I wasn't like into Star Wars or anything. This right, you just saw the old movies and thought, yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's fun. I get it. Um, I was more interested in the video games. The video games really didn't have that Wild West feel. No, uh, definitely not. So, StarCraft had this awesome, like, space, Wild West in the space, like, thing to it. I, I still remember vividly, and at this point, we, because we were still at the old house before I'd moved. Um, and I remember vividly sitting there and uh, hearing like just the soundtrack to the game was was impactful. I still remember that's the soundtrack of, of StarCraft. And I remember, uh, I believe StarCraft was the one where you could start, you could make some of your own missions and do some modding, I believe. I think there were, yeah, there were custom scenarios yeah. people could create, or that custom was, maps at least. That was my first, the first time I ever like 
was trying to like make my own story in a game. Like, oh, I've got tools here that would let me tell a story if I wanted to. First time I ever tried to do that. Eh, I don't know. I don't. I mean, it didn't go anywhere. But uh, but you got to play around. It was my first time ever doing that in a game. Yeah. And Starcraft was just super fun. Did you finish this story in Starcraft? I did. So what is memorable for me with Starcraft is not the story because I never finished the story because I was so wrapped up in multiplayer. Oh. Yeah. And this was the first game that. Got me kind of into the esports, not esports proper. Like I wasn't trying to make money off of it by any means. But nobody was. Right, right. But I cared about competition genuinely for the first time with video games. Prior to that, it was just it was just sports. It was soccer and basketball, like I was playing as a kid. But now I actually cared about winning at a video game. Like when I went and played Quake or whatever at whoever's house, yeah. I was like, yeah, it's fun to win or kill people. But I was like, I don't really care that much. But StarCraft, I cared about getting better and improving and ranking up on the ladder and getting to that point. And I played that game pretty addictively for six months because of it. Was that when Battle Battle.net that was, first yeah, so, came around? No, Battle.net came first with Diablo in 96 and then okay. it, and then but that's when we were yeah. with all the hackers in all the world and then starcraft came and with it battle.net got refined a little bit yeah. uh, so it is plays a role really in my experience of getting into first person shooters later in the early 2000s with the turn to castle wolfenstein yeah. because i realized how much i valued both strategy and competitive multiplayer getting to indulge in learning about all the intricacies of a deep game like yeah. starcraft but that's what StarCraft did for me, was get me into online multiplayer competition. No, we left out Command & Conquer. Yeah, that's we did. somewhere. I didn't play it. Oh, I played it. And Command & Conquer Red Alert, too. You know, it was a high school with one of the top Red Alert we players did. in the world. I, I did know that. Yeah. Uh, was very good. Gabe, I yeah, think. Yeah, Gabe was really good. Uh, which was also such a bizarre thing. I remember that was like a weird, like, what do you mean? You're like the best? Like, you're the <laughs> highest ranking? Right. And you're like, but you also go to high school with us. And it's just it's a mess. That was weird. Uh, another, another kind of important game came out that year. Oh. Half-Life. Oh, well, to you and to a bazillion other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to like everybody else. I didn't care. Yeah, which, helped, which helped also bring around Counter-Strike. Uh, but uh, Half-Life, that was a, you know, at this time, Valve was... Uh, was really doing well, and I feel like they were, the story of Half-Life was really cool. Um, that was one of the first FPSs where I felt, you know, in most FPSs up until then, you're a badass. You, you roll in with guns blazing, you're a soldier or something. And this, you're just like a scientist guy, and you have a crowbar. <laughs> right, you just sort of stumble into this whole mess. Yeah, and you're like, what do I do? <laughs> you know, so that's that was a really cool moment, because I remember getting scared playing the game. I'm like, yeah, they, they'd have jump scares, and you're like, oh crap, and then like, oh now I'm like, I got nervous playing the game. I remember the first time that you see the uh, the, um, the the Black Ops, not the Black Ops, the Black later in the game, the Black Ops teams come in mm-hmm. uh, into the Mesa compound, and your and my first reaction is like, oh, good, because I've been on my own in this nightmare, <laughs> and then they're trying Fine. to kill you too. And it's like I just remember that my heart dropped. I'm like, no, <laughs> I want to know. Like, come on, man, I'm just a scientist in the crowbar. And I replayed, I remember replaying the opening, opening level of that game. I don't know why, but I just would play it over and over. I wouldn't even go any further. I just wanted to play the first level over and over and over again. Uh, something about it just was so, was so innovative and cool. Anyways, it was 98. Funny. You got anything else from 98? Well, the only sports game that I've devoted more than probably 20 hours to came out in 98. Which was NHL 99. <laughs> and I had a friend at yeah. soccer. Uh, who played played soccer with, 
And at some point, I found out he also played NHL 99. Okay. So after soccer, we just go and play NHL 99. Awesome. <laughs> it was amazing. The game, also, the game had like all these sports games at the time, which is probably noticeable, and it probably still has this. There's always glitches of, like, if you did this one thing, you would score a goal. Yeah, yeah. So the whole game was to set it up to try to score this one type of goal. All, yeah, all, uh, all, the, all um, sports games. All match games have certain plays. I've told you about the HP toss left right. really early at Madden Eventually, night. somebody will find a game yeah. or find a way to break it. And there were no patches at the time. Nope. So it just was broken. The game at release had better be ready. <laughs> and it wasn't. <laughs> Those days were well behind us now. Right. Um, yeah, so 97 to 98, a lot of uh, really like foundational. Right. That's all we split it up, even though we were only. We went like two thirds of the way through the nineties, and we stopped because yeah. a third of it was going to take about the same amount of time. Those two, yeah, those two. Really, ninety nine, I've got very little. In those two years, ninety seven, ninety eight, like that's the, the foundation of so many of the biggest games in the world. I'm excited about ninety nine because it's the year of disappointment. The year of disappointment. <laughs> I have two of my most disappointing games ever released. All right, I've got. Let me do my one because it's quick. Okay. I got one game from ninety nine. That was Alpha Centauri, uh, which comes from the Civilization series, but it's set in space. Yep. And so it's and kind it has of, like a storyline too. And, and and I was it had it had a really cool story, right? Um, which was something I'd never seen before in these kind of games. And what was cool too is you know a lot of civilization games the way you can win is you build the space race, right? You win the space race, you build the shuttle, your civilization takes off for the stars. Alpha Centauri was kind of like the sequel. It's like oh that civilization all the time I spent playing Civilization, uh, getting out of the space. Oh, this is the continuation of that. Now what happens? And that was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, it, has, it had an actual story developing while you're playing the game itself. And it changed kind of based on what race you were, I think. Like yeah. each race had its own little story. And there were definitely choices you could make. Uh, right, there were choices. They really changed things up in a way that, which is weird. So we talked about all these games have influenced games after it. Yeah. There's no, like, successor to Alpha Centauri. There's not. And I would buy it, and a lot of other people would, and a lot of times that civilization information comes up, they're like, when's the next Alpha Centauri coming up? I think I think people have tried, maybe. Maybe it just hasn't really panned out. Yeah, I don't know if... If anyone listening knows of spiritual successors to Alpha Centauri that are good, or shitty, you know, just let us know. Sure. Because um, I would love to play... You know, a, a good spiritual success. Maybe the closest is Endless Legends, which is a fantasy game, yeah. but it, it also has an element of story and it's kind of that 4X style of gameplay. Yeah. But it wasn't quite the same. But also, at that time, I was also like sci fi, it had this good appeal to my side, science fiction side. Sure. Love, love of that stuff. So it was, it was cool. All right. So you've got two disappointments. <laughs> I do. I, I will say edge. one good game. So just because it barely made it, Quake 3 Arena did come out December of 1999. Oh, it did. Yeah. Just made the cutoff. We just made the cutoff, and yes. we did play that a pretty good amount. I remember playing early, like, somebody had an alpha. I think that. we land that at some point. We did. So yeah. I think that was, like, one of the first games we really land together. Yeah. Which so. is pretty compelling. So my two biggest disappointments are these two long-running run running series that I've mentioned early games in. Mm. Uh, so the first is Ultima 9. <laughs> it was, like, the buggiest piece of shit ever. You couldn't do anything. I don't even think you could progress part of the quest if you kind of stumbled along this one area. Yeah. The game was the most repetitive crap ever. Nothing in the game was good. It was just, but it looked kind of pretty mm -hmm. if you could get past the five frames per second that it ran at. <laughs> and then Final Fantasy VIII, which people do like wrongly. Okay. Final Fantasy VIII follows, I don't know, an emo story about an emo boy who does emo things, and it has the stupidest magic system yeah. ever. Isn't that what the new Final Fantasy game is? 
Uh, I don't know. It's like four emo boys. Yeah, may- maybe. But story. at least they're like, maybe they're like cool emo boys. This is just like an annoying emo boy. Oh, okay. I, I don't know. I didn't play Final Fantasy 15. <laughs> Although I did play the main character of it in second. So Final, <laughs> <laughs> so Final Fantasy 8, the other element of it that I really hated, that I could never get past, and I still to this day think it's asinine, the magic system in the game is basically an item inventory system where you steal magic from enemies and then you can cast it back on enemies or later enemies. So you kind of, A, have to grind magic because you don't just get mana back every battle. You have to actually go and set up and steal all this fucking spells from people, which is just inventory. So just, you know, like the steal command that's in JRPGs that nobody uses more than a handful of times? Well, that's like what you have to do if you ever want to use magic for every single battle over and over. Really? It just adds a lot of grinding. It takes away any element of strategy because it's like, do you have the items or not? Yes, no, okay. Well, if you do, you might have an infinite number of them because you've sit there grinding, drawing, which is what they called it, this, this stuff over and over. And nothing was good. I well, okay, sorry. One thing was good. The opening scene, the the story, story, the song is really good. Okay. So that that was good. So if you get to that part, I think it boots up when you load the game. Yeah. So like after this three minutes are over, you should just break the disc. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. so we're stopping in 99 because we said the 90s. Yeah, like it was all it just let up. You think you're going to hit this amazing crescendo, and then it just all blam on it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what 99 is. Yeah, 97, 98 was really when it was happening. And uh, mm-hmm. or actually, really, I mean, I would say 90, well, 94, 95. Oh! Things started building, but yeah, 97, 98. I wrote this really small. There was a good game in 1999 that we played. Okay, well, Age of Empires 2. Yeah, well, no, don't forget, Alpha Centauri, that was 99. Oh, sorry, right, that one, one that was on my list. Yeah, but you're right, Alpha Centauri was really good. Age of Empires Age 2. Age of Empires 2. We yeah. also, that was probably, I can't remember if we landed or we played it online, but we definitely played that in some element where each of us were all playing together. Yeah, because we definitely started, we started landing in... Uh, it was in high school. It was, did we start in middle school or was it high school? I think it was high school. Yeah, that was like back in the early days where no one really knew how to do it, we were just kind of figuring that yeah, it's like, all right, we got to plug in this router into this router. Oh, it doesn't work. We have to reset it. Oh, God, why isn't this working? Change this. The, yeah, we're like, <laughs> we thought we were being so smart. Now we're back. We're like, man, we just like hitting buttons up and something would work. And I, I think when we land 10 years ago, something like that, we had the same problem. We're like, nothing's changed. <laughs> I mean, I think we got faster at setting things up. We probably did, but then we forgot it all. Yeah, I remember the first few times we were like, all right, well, let's spend the next four hours trying to get to work. <laughs> Maybe we'll spend one hour playing games. Yeah, for sure. All right, so that'll, I think, do it. I think that does it, yeah. Our trip to the 90s was educational. Yep, I hope you all enjoyed running through it. I learned some things about myself. Yeah, yeah I did too, which is weird. <laughs> so yeah. we are going to close out with our little game. See if uh, you can guess the song. Yeah, guess the sound, right? Yes, yeah. So we'll so uh, play a track from a game this time. I'll, I'll replay the track. Uh, this is that, well, technically we already did this. We technically did this, but it's episode. really good. So uh, you can all guess this. We'll so here, here it is. Uh, we're going to replay it and looking for the game and the gun if you can get it. So. Quad spawn. Team has the quad. Your team has the quad. Net master killing spree. So that was uh, Quake Three. <laughs> right, the 
And, the railgun? Uh, the railgun, yeah, that's what we're looking for. Right. Um, that is the railgun from Quake 3, the game's Quake 3, as it showed up uh, just under the wire for our 90s walk. Back, back in the 90s? Yeah. Now, you've got one uh, that you played for me last week, so I already know what it is this time. But I'll give you my comment. I'll give you the same comments that okay. I said last time. So, yeah. so here it is. We'll play it real quick. So, yeah, so the I had no idea what this was, right. um, but I was able to pick the country of origin based yep. on the music. True. Um, and I had a decent shot at the, I had a decent shot at the decade, too. I think so. I think you're but I was, I'm not going to say, so th- th- we were joking because it's like picking out wine, you know, it's like, listen to the soundtrack of the game, you're like, hmm, that sounds like it's from this country, this era, I'm gonna guess this kind of... I haven't had it specifically, however. (laughs) Context clues. This is what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I have a pretty good idea. I think a lot of other people are gonna get it, because I I never played this game, but I think a lot of people have. Yes, they did. Yeah. It's a good game. Uh, Cool, that's it. Uh, That'll do it. So you can check us out online. Yep. NoSickDaysPodcast.com we're on every recording service, so if you don't like what you're listening to us on, go find another one. Yeah. They're all great. We're on you, all things. We've got all the social medias. You can find it all on our website. Right. And then we're also on Facebook and Twitter, which we haven't used really. But we're on Facebook primarily and our website. Yeah. So you can reach us there easily. And then no sick days podcast at gmail.com. I should have gotten more coffee. Well, now's your chance. That's cool. I have an eight hour shift in front of me. This is great. Enjoy. (laughs) All right. All right. Uh, With that, I'm John. I'm Chris. Konami releases Snake's Revenge. All right. All right. All right. Let's just start. 1990. Fire Emblem. 1990. 1990, 1990, 1990. Just gonna keep saying 1990. That'll be a solid. Recording. We'll just. Here we go. We'll just send it all. We apologize for those that are listening to the recording. Uh, we forgot to hit the record button, so uh, you missed a, a few, few announcements. But uh, the amplify situation, as I mentioned, is going along smoothly. We hope to start the final phases of negotiation uh, within the next week or so. Uh, so with that, I think we want to move on to talking about our financials. Uh, John was kind enough to send out some notes uh, just before the call. Uh, John, if you want to take it away here. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to get into every, every detail here. Uh, you sh- if you check your emails, you should see kind of the investor call notes. It includes some data about uh, how we're doing this year, how we've been doing the last couple quarters. Um, yeah, again, I don't want to go into the specifics. You can all certainly take a look at it yourselves. Uh, just the big picture stuff uh, I would like to point out is you know, distribution has been growing. Um, Obviously, which has been great. Uh, we're up 18% for the year. Uh, importantly, I do want to point out that our keg sales have, has the um, keg sales have grown by 37% versus last year, uh, which we're very excited about there because that is a better margin item than a package. And traditionally, the thought is that you know the draft sales drive package sales. Uh, that there's you know some debate about whether that still holds true in today's market, but nevertheless. Uh, it definitely means more, you know, placement in the market, more people seeing Fourth Tap Brewing at their bars. So that's we view that to be as you know a good thing. 
Um, obviously, our, you know, with that, our, our production's been growing as well. Uh, Taproom sales are up 11% over last year, uh, which we're very excited about. So overall, we're up 15% uh, for total sales. Um, outside of that, on the second page, there's, you, know, you can see total revenue based on channels, uh, based, or per, you know, sorry, yeah, all channels based on quarter. Um, then another breakdown just to kind of show the overall trend of, uh, of growth we've been experiencing since, since, we, got, since we got started. Uh, a little some additional data about, you know, how the year is progressing, you know, in terms of like CEs and that kind of thing. So um, outside of that, uh, Taproom, we are currently experiencing our best year. Uh, 2016 historically had been our best year ever. Uh, that was prior to, you know, Oscar Blues opening, Cellus opening, Adelbert's and Circle changing their hours, Austin Beerworks opening their new tap room. Uh, so 2016, we were, we were new in town, everybody's interested. So uh, that was our, that had been our best year previously. 2019 has, has finally, you know, not just reversed the trend of, of you know, shrinkage from the last two years, but we're actually uh, doing better than we did back in 2016, which is, is fantastic. Um, looking this year versus last year, we're up 11%. Um, looking at the, let's see, what was the other thing I wanted to point out here? Um, one thing I did want to point out is we see an 11% year-to-date growth in sales, but a 4% year-to-date growth in volume, uh, meaning that our actual dollar amount is, is growing faster than the volume that we're selling, um, which to us suggests that you know we have more premium offerings in our taproom. We've talked about that a couple times throughout the year. You know, we're trying to get more premium, higher price items on the, on the menu. And what we're seeing is that people are gravitating towards those higher price items, which is awesome. Uh, their margins are better. Uh, the, the actual sales are better. So we're, we're very much into that. Um, September has been a little, little tricky. Um, PWR did not perform as well as we had hoped. Uh, it still had over 1,500 people. We still did almost $11,000 in sales. Um, however, we were competing with some pretty extreme heat. And the UT-LSU game was happening at the same time. So... For next year, uh, we're going to talk to the PWR guys and try to keep them from scheduling a PWR event on one of the biggest football games of the year. Uh, that'd be awesome. Uh, with that said, um, we are still, September still performing well, uh, even taking taking into account the uh, how much less PWR did this, this year versus last year. So we're still feeling good about that. Um, especially as Beer to Go is finally launched, so we're starting to see that in, in place. Um, we, we kind of estimated doing about $4,000 in Beer to Go sales in September. Um, we were on pace to do that. Uh, not too much higher, not too much lower, but right now the pace kind of hits us landing at about $4,000 by the end of the month, which feel feel good about that. Um, we do have some pilots planned uh, coming up. Um, our crowd machine itself did not get up and running until last Friday, so about the first like five days or so of September, we did not have a functioning growler machine, but we do now. So now we are able to offer beer to go in uh, cases, growler fills, 32, 64 ounce, and uh, crowlers, so 19.2, kind of those tall boy cans. And um, we were also, you know, when we first opened up uh, the beer to go on Sunday, we only had our Super Knot, our Super Knot cookies and cream, and our uh, Highland Scoundrel available. We since added the Brood of All Evil watermelon strawberry to the mix. And this week, we are going to be adding uh, this second variation of Supernaut, Can You Dig It, and Plus Two Vitality, uh, and House of Torment. So our, the actual variety we have available for people to buy and take with them is about to, to double. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. I think that's going to help drive some additional sales. 
Um, and then outside of that, you know, one of the things we also track is just our revenue per barrel in the tap room. That's jumped up 5%. Uh, it's about $1,380.47 per barrel. Um, and we, we tr that kind of goes in line with the, you know, thought that people are moving towards a more premium offering. So the 11% growth versus 4% growth in volume uh, kind of makes sense there. Uh, yeah, that's, that's really the, uh, the, the quick takeaways. Um, you know, as we wrap up September, which is the third quarter, uh, we'll have a lot more detailed information about how the year is playing out. Uh, we'll have a good idea of how things, you know, by, by the end of the month, we'll have most of the rest of the year locked down in terms of releases and sales. And so we should have a pretty clear idea of how the year is going to end up. Yeah. Any questions there? Okay. Um, next thing we wanted to touch on is uh, our Dallas POs. So. I think we we've been in a situation where they you know backed off their promise that they were going to launch Dallas and DFW and be this big thing. Um, so we were all kind of disappointed about that. We talked about that at the last meeting. Um, however, they have been able to activate all the total lines in the DFW area. So we're already seeing those accounts uh, brought online, and uh, there's additional accounts coming in. We've actually already seen uh, the orders going to Hops and Vines distribution increasing. Um, they actually tried to order triple the amount of our variation two of Supernauts. Um, unfortunately, they tried to do that the week we're packaging, and we had to remind them that if they, they need to tell us in advance so we can order the cans and brew the beer, and, and so you know it's a little frustrating to, to, uh, to get that from them. Uh, but on the flip side, we're excited about the fact that it looks like Dallas is going to ramp up uh, a little quicker than they had told us. Um, so my hope is that as we get into October, we're able to, you know, we're able to plan ahead for those additional sales. Yeah. So. If anything, I mean, it speaks to uh, larger sales for the third uh, Supernaut variation, right? So that one right. is going to do even better. Uh, I don't think I have much to add there. I think, okay. yeah, we're just kind of rolling in there. More things come online, more wholesalers. Uh, we'll start seeing the uptick, uh, and uh, we can start measuring the uptick. Uh, Matt has a question. Uh, what's the third Supernaut? Uh, Matt just asked, what is the third Supernaut? Uh, right now, it's going to be uh, peanut butter chocolate. Peanut butter chocolate. Yeah, peanut butter chocolate Imperial Stout. So yeah. it'll be delicious. Think yes. like a, Re a Reese's yeah. <laughs> in a glass. Yeah. yeah. Um, the next thing we do want to talk about, uh, we sent the email out. You saw, probably saw the post on social media, but uh, Chris Hamjay is uh, leaving us physically, although not leaving the company. He's still going to be involved in running the company. Um, but... Uh, just to touch on it real quick, you know, his wife is uh, Olivia Hamjay is an active duty member of the United States Air Force and has been stationed in Missouri for the last two years. Uh, and he is eager and desperate to go uh, live with her. And so as, as close friends from way back, we all support this immensely. We want to see him happy. We want to see her happy. Um, that definitely has created some opportunities, but also some challenges here uh, at the brewery. Um, However, we, you know, having brought on Mike Foster uh, back near the end of, uh, during, during July uh, has been great. He's been ramping up super quick. And then we also brought on Amanda Bishop, who I believe we've sent out information about her. Well, Amanda, Amanda Bishop is a, was formerly a head brewer at a brewery in California. And prior to that, she had worked in the Canadian wine industry for about, I want to say, eight years. Uh, so she also comes in with a uh, high degree of technical aptitude uh, towards the brewing process. And today was actually her second brew here at the brewery, uh, training under Chris. So we're getting her ramped up pretty fast as well. Um, but I imagine there's probably some questions or concerns around that. So you know, want to open it up 
if anybody has any comments or questions about uh, Chris leaving and, and us kind of shifting things around. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll add some comments here. Uh, you know, it's really fortunate that Chris is able to give us such advanced notice. Um, all of the major uh, cornerstone beers for Fourth Tap, uh, KFR, Vitality, Kitty Diggit, will be well practiced by our new staff, in addition to things like Sun Eater as well. So, all of these kind of brands that underpin Fourth Tap, uh, both of these individuals will have extensive practice uh, with brewing those beers. And so, I anticipate that the quality of the beers will uh, uh, be maintained, or maybe even excel, honestly. Both Amanda and Mike are highly qualified individuals. Yeah. So, we're, we're pretty. Excited about it. So we're pretty excited about it. Uh, along, I think, with the uh, staffing change, uh, we're kind of shifting our planning model as to how we do new product uh, with a greater emphasis on making sure we can have all the pilots in place and we're just getting more mature about product development overall. Uh, so both Mike and Amanda have expressed a strong desire with uh, carrying out this pilot program, uh, which is great because, you know, honestly, my back was getting pretty tired. Uh, and all those pilots. So it's nice to have uh, the additional support and it's nice to have the uh, production team uh, uh, really taking that up, picking up that flag and, and helping me carry it. So yeah. uh, I think it's going to be great. I'm really excited about all the beers they want to produce. I'm excited about their new ideas. I honestly, I hate to see Chris go, but if I'm being totally honest, there are some positives. Uh, it's nice to have uh, you know the staff with uh, this breadth of experience. Um, and from a financial standpoint, you know, I'm sure there's some concerns about hiring people. You know, we were uh, the way we were able to to set the kind of new payroll structure uh, with everybody. So we had Bill depart us. So you know, Blake uh, we let go in July. Um, Bill departed us to move to Atlanta with his wife um, at the end of August, and now Chris will be obviously stepping coming off of payroll uh, since he will no longer be here day to day. So he said, I don't. He's like. Pay me a dollar a year is fine or nothing. Like he's he's still just as as an equity holder in the company, he's still very interested in making sure we're successful. Um, but he no longer is going to be taking a salary, uh, which freed us up to um, become a lot more efficient with the way we're using our payroll. Um, I forget if I actually discussed this at the last meeting, but based on the benchmarking surveys that have come out, we kind of knew that for the volume we were producing, our production staff was short by at least one full time equivalent position. And uh, as things have been shaking out, uh, we're actually able to get uh, almost, I think, like 4.3, 4.4 full-time equivalent positions for uh, slightly less payroll than what we were paying. So we were actually saving a little bit of money, and out of that, we have an entire additional position added to the workforce. So um, now, obviously, some of that's also because they're still in their early periods you know we, we bring people in at a lower rate for the first 90 days just to be certain that they're going to work out um, but even with them bumping up you know it's still it still shakes out to where we're like just slightly it said essentially it's a wash it's the easiest way to put it in terms of the actual uh cash outlay so we viewed that as another as another uh in terms of like the opportunities that it opened up for us that that was a pretty good one uh any anytime we get to like you know, kind of restructure our staffing model to make it more efficient, a better use of funds makes us all very happy. Any questions about this? Okay, well, if you do have any questions, you know, feel free to reach out to John or myself. Uh, I'm more than happy to answer them. Uh, but I think we're going to move on to the next agenda item, which is talking about our strategic partnerships. Uh, talking about some of our efforts there. Go through those yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, 
obviously the House of Torment, that's a big win for Fourth Tap. Uh, you know, a lot of that is driven by Aaron and her connections with 13th Floor and House of Torment. Uh, they also have a strong relationship with uh, Trail of Lights. Uh, you know, for those of you in Austin, Trail of Lights is a very big production sponsored by HEB and a few other large organizations. Uh, so we were working to get a similar partnership with them where we produce a Trail of Lights beer. We were thinking some kind of gingerbread Christmas red ale or something or brown ale, something along those lines. Uh, unfortunately, the timing was just a little bit tight. Uh, we would have had to have submitted like packaging yesterday, basically, to get all the artwork in place. And so the deal didn't work out, but uh, I think some inroads are made there. And, and hopefully in 2020, uh, we can get that partnership going. And that would make Q3 and Q4 2020 very nice because, uh, you know, House of Torment is generated probably over, a, I think after keg sales, it's going to be like over a thousand case equivalents, probably. Yeah. It's yeah. big. It's big. It's the biggest seasonal release we've ever right. done. So something similar to that in December would be uh, very nice. I'd be very happy to have that. So that's definitely something we're going to keep working on uh, for next year. Yeah, and the way that that was facilitated is the owner of House of Torment, uh, who has become a very big fan of ours, is pers- close personal friends with the um, one of the owners of the Trail of Lights Festival, and uh, he's the one who made the connection. And yeah, like he said, it just it was a little too quick this year a little too short notice and so they've you know they've definitely expressed real interest so we're, we're hoping next year we'll be able to put that together right um go with yeah along the similar lines uh we try and maintain a very close relationship with uh, the austin uh, football club uh, obviously they've just broke ground uh, aaron and john were kind enough to go out there and uh, go out there for the groundbreaking uh-huh. and uh yeah we so we've yeah. got some some kind of cool behind the scenes stuff that's happening there um, I reached out a few weeks ago to my contact and said, hey, you know, what's up with the pedestrian path and the train station? I'm like, well, who do I talk to to find out what's going on? And uh, he introduced me to the uh, VP of stadium operations. And so I invited him out for a beer. So he came out. My contact came out. Uh, the head, I met to meet the head groundskeeper as well. Um, turns out they're already regulars at 4th Tap, which is cool. Uh, so we ended up just hanging out, having beers, and uh, got to know them pretty well. Um, you know, we spent some time talking about possible partnerships with us in, in Austin FC, and uh, that's how Aaron and I got an invite out to the ground uh, the groundbreaking ceremony last uh, Monday. I got to see Matthew McConaughey lead the Austin anthem in a chant, which was uh, hilarious. They chanted, "All right, all right, all right, <laughs> Austin FC," which is surreal. Uh, yeah, but you know, it's great. Nice thing was I got to connect with uh, Greg Kassar, who's our uh, city council member for this district and a, a friend of ours. Um, and in our my conversations with him, he offered up, he's like, hey, you know, when it comes time to get this pedestrian pathway, let me know. You know, I'll help you guys. I, w- I want to lean on this. It's something he wants as well. It's nice for him to just offer that. Um, in terms of getting it done, uh, it doesn't look like it is going to happen the very first year. There's a lot of construction happening. Um, from what I heard from the Austin FC side, there's obviously the amount of red tape and bureaucracy they're having to push through just to get the stadium built um you know they're anything that's not a super priority kind of got pushed back um their concern however is though getting through city council and um since i've got somebody you know, we've got someone on city council who's an ally and, and wants to see it done maybe we can get some things pushed through a little sooner um that's obviously a big kind of side project but it's it's one of those like could be a big long-term payoff for everybody um there is a pedestrian pathway being built uh along uh kind of along burn it so there will be easier access from our brewery which is good not as easy as we wanted but the other side is the if you're familiar with our neighborhood there's a big road that kind of wraps around behind 
the news station and you know Elliott Electrical Supply back into the railroad tracks, and their intention is actually to use that road as their primary um, like rideshare service drop-off zone. At least that's what that's the current plan, uh, which is exciting because that's right at our brewery. So we're we're very much into that into that idea, um, and it's just good. We're, so we're forging some pretty strong relationships with the front office staff there. Uh, and getting you know getting with you know city council in terms of their interest and in seeing the stadium successful. So uh, yeah, I mean, and it, it's also nice that they've become regulars at our brewery. So that's that's going to help. So we're excited to see what opportunities will uh, come out of that developing relationship. Yeah. yeah. So I think the one question I had uh, through all this news is like, do we know if any of this construction is going to uh, you know impact metric and shut it down and damage like business to the tap room? I haven't seen anything yet. It might be too early. Uh, my understanding is there's no construction plan from Metric. Yeah. So, so we should be we should be okay. Yeah, we should be in the clear. So so far so good there. That was my one big fear. So I think a Delberts might have, might hit it, but get hit because yeah. uh, they share a road, which will be an entrance to the the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So they might have some issues here, but so far we're looking pretty good in that in that regard. Um, the only other partnerships we got is our Wild Gift uh, coffee roaster here in Austin. Uh, that's that backcountry is being released in two weeks i think yeah i'm looking at the calendar right now two weeks uh backcountry's our coffee stout they made custom custom roasted beans uh and uh custom cold brew which we're blending in with the beer so we're very excited about that one this year we took their logo and made it a little bigger on the can since that that in of itself is a selling point so we're feeling good about that one uh and i think that's all the strategic you know all the partnerships we got working right now yeah are there any questions or uh also, if you know of any partnerships that we should have, you know, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we're always looking for new partners, uh, people to work with, people we think are cool. So, okay. uh, real quick, do you want to touch on what we're looking at for the um, November, December, January timeframe? Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, this kind of leads back into what I was talking about with, uh, you know, becoming more mature about product development. Uh, Traditionally, this time period that we're in now, at the end of September, October, and November, uh, we have products that have been developed you know, over time. We know these are going to be hits. We know Coffee Backcountry does well. We know House of Torment does well. And that sense of security is really nice. Uh, when we go into the November, December, uh, January time frame, we don't yet have that sense of security. We don't have those brands that we're like, oh, man, these brands are going to be big hits. And what we've discovered this year is a big revenue driver are a lot of these seasonals, you know, not just in the tap room, but, you know, also something we can spread out amongst all your distributors, get those guaranteed sales at a higher margin. It's nice. Uh, so we're putting a renewed effort into making sure that this time period between mid-November to potentially mid-January or mid-February, uh, we have products that have been well-tested, well-developed, uh, that are going to be hits, basically. Um, you know, right now... We have a long list of things we're trying to pursue and test, but we're looking at, as mentioned earlier, the Supernaut variant with the peanut butter and chocolate. Uh, there are potentials for a fruited brute IPA with a wine grape it's for the new year. We're looking at re-releasing -re regular brute IPA as well for the new year. There's potential to just regular brute IPA. Uh, we're looking at uh, a new IPA brand, a no-boil milkshake IPA. We're looking at also doing a third DDH variant um, and uh, I have a list up here. Running Man is for, I think, January, right? So yeah. Running Man, uh, that's going to be our locale hazy IPA offering. Uh, we're trying to get the get into the better for you market. 
you guys are familiar with that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're pretty open to exploring everything. Uh, even on that list, there is a heart seltzer. Uh, that wouldn't be until later next year if we decide to go forward with that. Uh, but for the November, January timeframe, uh, yeah, th those are kind of the, the options we're currently looking at right now. And uh, thanks to the restructuring and the additional labor force, uh, I feel very confident that we'll be able to get all of those pilots done ahead of time and be very clear as to what's going to be a winner and what's not going to be a winner. So I'm excited to see the performance of these seasonals uh, compared to, say, some of the seasonals we had uh, in years prior. Um, in addition to that, uh, I am excited to announce uh, that next week we will be uh, canning Sun Eater. Yes. And I believe Chris ordered another batch worth of ingredients uh, on Monday. So we've got another Sun Eater following it up pretty fast, uh, which we're very excited about. Because as we've said many times, this brand uh, serves as just additional. I mean, aside from the fact that, you know, we think it's good and people, you know, really, really freak out about this, this beer is the easiest, simplest way to put it. Um, it doesn't cannibalize from other sales. It's just extra sales. It's on top of everything else. So it's a, it's a, it's a great thing to be able to do. Um, obviously, there's concerns about capacity because it does take a lot longer to produce, um, which you know, we've discussed. Um, but we kind of mentioned we've got some investors who have we've been in discussions with about bringing in like an extra tank that would serve purely as like a sun eater tank, essentially. But yeah, I mean, I think the main thing I just want to bring up there is that next week uh, you will see Sun Eater re-released and uh, with, with much more intense quality control this time around uh, to ensure we don't have any issues. Well, this is Sun Eater Classic, right? Sorry? This is Sun Eater Classic. This is Sun Eater Classic, yeah. yeah. But even, even still, yeah. And then uh, that should be hitting shelves, you know, pretty quick after that. So we are, well, and I should say, you know, we are being very restrictive in its distribution just due to the history of us being able to be being oversold we're out of stock it takes forever to produce so um the limit the number of accounts that we're even opening it up to is fairly limited i think we're looking at 10 to 12 accounts basically want to ensure you know we have an estimate of how many cases they all kind of go through in a given week and so we're kind of saying all right well, let's keep you know x number of weeks supply on hand so we can ensure that those accounts keep it on the shelf in stock uh, and also source half from itself is well stocked so you know might create a little bit of scarcity in the market hopefully people will come here to buy it uh, or at least go to those few accounts that will carry it um, yeah so we're feeling good about that yeah I know honestly and this is where gear to go once again uh, is really key to a lot of things the ability to sell it in the tap room I don't think we can state that enough uh, the nice thing about Sun Eater is that because we have a history of distributing it outside the tap room we can produce a good volume of the beer, distribute it to key accounts, but then keep enough in our cold room to guarantee uh, to go sales, and it generates buzz. It's one of the beers we get a lot of calls about every day, a lot of emails, when are you making this again? So uh, I'm very excited to see that back. I'm excited to see it to go as well. I'm very interested to track the performance of that beer in particular. Yeah. Cool. Are there any questions about uh, our production process or potential what we have coming out in November through January? Okay. All right. Well, uh, as always, we uh, greatly appreciate you taking the time out to call in uh, or stop in and uh, kind of go through the stuff with us. Um, there's usually follow-up questions that come in after these meetings. Please, if you've got any ideas, contacts, um, beers you would like to see, uh, we're still still in the R&D process for some of these months. Uh, reach out. Let us know. Um, be happy to talk. Close in.
Yeah. Okay. Right. I think you closed this out. Right, that was go. really well said. What am I supposed to follow that up with? <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm, I think John and I are both just tired today. We, uh, it's been a long, long day for us. But uh, yeah, I want, I'll read her what John said. Cool. We really appreciate all your efforts. And if you do have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. I'll be happy to get back to you. All right. And we'll follow us up with the copy of the recording. And uh, well, again, thank you. And you all have a great, uh, great evening. Great evening. Bye. Thank you all. Thanks, Dan. Sorry, John. I was really tired. Me too. Me too. That's all. Like I said, all that. No, we're still recording. Well, for those of you still listening, yes, we are in fact tired. Yeah. Um, but thank you for. And for those of you, <laughs> so if you're wondering what you missed in the first part, uh, it was just a thanks for uh, everyone who helped us uh, reach our funding goal. Uh, we were able to get you know all the production we needed to get done, mostly in the right time frame. There were a few things that slipped by a few days, but uh, once again, we really appreciate the support. Uh, and yeah, we're looking forward to uh, another great month. Cool. Right. Dave Alco, <clears throat> just called in. Hi, Dave. Hey, how you doing? Doing good, staying healthy. We're gonna give people a few more minutes here just to make sure we can get um, everyone dialed in before we start. We can start at uh, 6.35 just to give everybody a little bit more time. Hi, this is uh, John and Dee. Who joined? Hi, this is Meg and Ray. Hey, y'all. Hi, y'all. Wait about another minute here before we get started. There's one more person in there that didn't. That's fine. All right, so I think we're going to go ahead and start here. Um, so I think the agenda was pretty well advertised. We're going to start with uh, the uh, distributor updates, or let me, we're going to start with some basic updates on our equipment, distributors, and our finances, and uh, then we're really going to start breaking down uh, COVID and how that's impacting our business or about to impact our business, as the case may be. Uh, so I'm going to let John start here. He's reading off the notes, so if you get the second email or third email at this point, uh, you can follow along. Yeah, so um, just looking at uh, the equipment updates, uh, the cold room is now installed. Uh, we were able to get that secured, built. Uh, we had the um, <clears throat> guy from uh, called Austin Airworks, um, the guy from uh, 
Um, Austin Beer Works, actually, is their lead uh, technician, came over and he's got a separate company and he built it. And he came highly recommended. Did a fantastic job, got the cold room up within under a week, which is pretty great. And we had it filled up within three days of it being operational. Uh, and that has actually been pretty fantastic so far. We've been able to have a bit of backstock at all times. We've been able to fill orders as needed. So we've lost one of our one of our metrics for this quarter is, you know, keeping lost sales to under what we call 200 CEs or, or case equivalents. And uh, we've been able to do that pretty well so far. So we're feeling good about that. So that was a big a big uh, a big thing to check off the list. Um, next thing we're looking at is an air compressor. Um, that's kind of the production's primary concern. Uh, there's a issue with the compressor we have not being strong enough uh, and also the air filtration dehydration but without getting too technical that's something we're looking at uh, replacing as soon as we can kind of figure out a way um, and then finally we had initially been pushing for an additional tank near the end of Q4 um, as you know the market slump slows down typically the you know December January February especially are the slowest depletion months of the year Depletions meaning, um, you know, what we're selling into, into our uh, distribution partners, what our distribution partners are selling into our retail partners. Um, but that's already picked up a bit faster uh, than we anticipated. So we've actually bumped up a couple times against our maximum capacity. Now that's that's to be said. That's because of Sun Eater's also back in production, and Sun Eater itself usually eats up a tank for what would normally be two two turns of any other beer. Uh, so that does get in the way. Um, and we've also made the decision to extend the length of time a few of our beers do spend in the tanks, and that's more for quality concerns. Uh, we had one beer that got rushed through and uh, had some issues regarding that, and another stout that was that could have used like an extra couple days just to make it a better beer. Um, but th those are those things are a little bit more minor. But overall, you know, we're, we're kind of bumping up against that. Um, one thing we've been watching for are auctions. Uh, there have been a number of auctions that have come up, and the ability to pick up tanks we've seen as low as you saw one for go for five thousand. Is that right? Yeah, there was a forty barrel for five thousand uh, and a sixty barrel for eight thousand, which is roughly yeah. a quarter of the actual value. So that would have been a great steal. Right, a, n a new tank would run us of a, a new new sixty barrel tank would, with install would be about twenty six thousand. Used market typically is going to run about fourteen to eighteen thousand. So. Grabbing one for 8000 is a, is a pretty fantastic deal. Um, so it's something we're keeping a very close eye on. Uh, and if an opportunity arises and it's something we feel like we want to jump at, you know, we'll obviously let everybody know. Uh, but for now, it's just you know, we're keeping a close eye on the auctions. Uh, that's kind of what's going on with equipment. Um, any questions before I jump to territory expansions for this year? OK. Um, so one of the one of my directives has been to you know grow our territory. Uh, you know we go basically going wide to help offset you know the competition in the market and help add you know the additional CEs that we need per month to really uh, feel comfortable. Um, we've been we've been working on that across the board. Uh, Corpus Christi is an area we've been eyeing for a while now, and. Uh, Hops and Vines says they are able to get this active as soon as April, which would be nice, um, barring, of course, any COVID-19 driven impacts to uh, the market. But assuming everything goes normally, we'd be able to start getting monthly shipments down to Corpus Christi, which uh, in of itself isn't going to represent a huge change. But in combination with these others, other items, it, we, we believe it's going to you know, help move the needle. Um, there's also something we're keeping an eye on. It's West Texas. So 
HEB is expanding their, uh, their footprint into West Texas. This is like San Angelo, Midland, Odessa, Lubbock. Um, and we are talking with Hops and Vines about following that expansion west. Now that looks more like a Q3, Q4 thing, um, but it's something we have on, you know, have on the radar and we're, it, it, the Q3, Q4 kind of works because going into the, the next section is looking at DFW. Um, all the permits have been cleared for TABC uh, or by TABC for Hops and Vines. That's been the big holdup until now is that they could not store our product in their Dallas warehouse. They had to ship it up the day they were, uh, they were delivering. So as of next week, I was told by the owner of Hops and Vines or, or the, the, I guess the senior vice president now of their craft beer selection. Yeah. Anyways, um, that they will have fourth tap product in the Dallas warehouse you know, as of next week. And then in terms of activating, you know, major retailers and, and starting to see an on-premise, you know, draft account push, uh, that's looking more like it's going to be Q2. So we feel like Q2 is going to be a big, a big quarter for us uh, in the, well, in the DFW area, but kind of in general. Um, that's going to involve like myself and Corey, our sales manager, driving up to Dallas. We're going to be meeting with their sales team, just kind of across the board training, getting everybody on board, understanding what the product is, getting it into stores, you know, building those relationships and trying to get a good, a good launch there. And so that's going to be looking at something I think we're looking at more like the May time frame, if I had to guess, for actual travel to Dallas, but that's when we're looking at. Um, outside of that, uh, one other area we've been eyeing is East Texas. Um, without getting it too, too complicated, uh, we have a connection to a, a delivery service that, can, that subcontracts with a distributor out of Dallas called Full Clip Distribution. And basically, I've spoken with the owner of Full Clip and the owner of the subcontractor, and they're open to the idea of us running kind of a, like a temporary distribution contract with Full Clip, exclusively allowing this subcontractor to distribute our beer uh, in East Texas. And I realize that's, that is as complicated as I could make it. I'm sorry. Uh, but it's, it's an opportunity, and again, it's not going to be a huge, uh, huge boost, but I feel like, or you know, we feel like with East Texas, West Texas, and Corpus Christi, those areas combined can add up to you know a significant bump in in sell-through rate. Yeah, but also DFW is also the big. That's the big big focus. Um, if you're not familiar, DFW is actually the second largest craft beer market in Texas, second to Austin. Uh, it's actually just ahead of Houston, which I was surprised to learn recently, but that is the case. So we want to get it. We want to get there. Any questions about uh, our territory expansion plans? Okay. Um, next thing we want to talk about is start getting into a little bit of the COVID-19 uh, impacts on the business and potential impacts. Um, I spent the day, you know, after, after the announcements of yesterday and seeing the acceleration of the uh, spread, I spent the day speaking with all of our suppliers and our distributors trying to understand what, if any, impacts there might be to our uh, supply chain and to our sales, sales uh, pipeline. Um, I spoke with BSG, one of our main suppliers. There's a possibility of a shortage on a single malt brand, but one that we only use occasionally. Otherwise, uh, their inventory is, is pretty massive. So we're not, they're not, they don't seem too concerned, so we're not too concerned. Um, all of our hops, all of our primary hops that we use are stored in Washington currently, um, and those are all contracted and, oh, sorry, what's going on? Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, technical, technical difficulties. Uh, so all of our contracts, all of our hops are contracted and basically set aside in a giant cold warehouse in Washington. So short of a, you know, as I wrote here, a complete and total lockdown of the state. Um, there's no threat to our hop supply uh, this year either. So feel good about that. Um, TVI, that is our primary malt supplier. Um, I spoke with them today. They've got 20 containers of malt, as you said, on the water, shipping their ship, you know, on the way to America. Um, and they've been stocking up on inventory in advance of this just to be safe. Now, they are a much smaller company. So if anybody does run out of product, I would expect it to, to be TVI. But we're in good standing with both, and so we're able to order uh, malt from BSG if we need to supplement something uh, in case TBI can't get their hands on it. And finally, uh, American Canning this is our can supplier. Um, everything they use is sourced in North America, uh, and they've had no concerns or warnings sent down the line. Um, basically, we're talking aluminum production, the can production, sleeve production, and, and wrapping the cans is, is all being done in North America. So. The import-export ban that's happened with Europe is not going to affect that. And if anything does, you know, get worse with these other countries, that should also not impact our can supply. So from a supply side view, uh, we're feeling pretty good about things. Now from a sales pipeline viewpoint, um, we have seen a bump in retail kind of across the board, which, which is to be expected. Everybody's making a run at HEB, at Target, at Walmart. Uh, so we are seeing, you know, Obviously, the sell-through of product at the store level has increased significantly. Now, the draft market has already started dropping off. Um, pe fewer people are going out to bars, drinking less beer in the bars. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, the majority of our business is done via uh, packaged beer, via retail. So it will not have as large of an impact, but it definitely will still have an impact. It remains to be seen if those two things are going to cancel out or, or wash in some way. Um, but we, we just, we're just going to have to keep a track, track of it as things are kind of changing day to day at this point. Um, any questions about supply side or pipeline chain uh, issues related to COVID? Before I get to the one real obvious impact on our, on our sales. Sure. Um, well, let me jump to this last bit, and then we can kind of open it up. Um, so the one very clear impact that's going to have on our, re our revenue is going to be in our tap room. Um, we, uh, if you haven't seen the news, we worked with PWR management and made the decision to uh, postpone the uh, PWR event that we have this Saturday, which typically, typically brings in between fifteen dollars and $18,000 in cash into the business, um, which is not an insignificant amount of money for us. Uh, that represents a very large amount of revenue for the business. Um, this year so far, we've been experiencing between 7 to 10% growth over the previous year, and the previous year had 16% growth over the year over that. So the taproom, up until the COVID virus uh, concern, the taproom's been performing very well. Uh, we've been very happy about that. Now, if the growth trend continues and we pretended that there was no COVID, um, we're kind of guessing between 7 and 10% growth for the year. So on the lower side, you know, you can see kind of the numbers there. Um, the way we do these, the second two estimates, kind of the low estimate and the high estimate, and by that I mean like the, a low impact of COVID or a high impact of COVID, uh, there's a couple of assumptions. The first is that the PWR event itself is canceled outright. So meaning instead of having four shows in the year, we're only having three. 
the second assumption we're making is that uh, through the months of March and April, we're going to see a 10% decrease in sales versus last year. Now, that number is coming from some of Dariusha's research he did on other markets, uh, other countries where they've already had more time with COVID. COVID. Maybe you can speak to that a little bit more. Yeah, so that's looking at London. Uh, well, they had around like 200 cases and uh, cities were starting to go into quarantine. Now, I, I don't have the exact quarantine numbers. Uh, I don't think those have been reported yet. And I was trying to find numbers in Washington uh, based on their tax data, uh, which just hasn't been released yet. It'll take a month to get that. Uh, most quarantine rules I've seen will allow businesses to stay open However, they'll require customers to, you know, usually stand like within a meter apart and not let them group. It's very bizarre. So uh, if we went into full quarantine, the impacts to our business might be greater than 10%. If we don't go into full quarantine and we kind of stay in this limbo state, I think projecting a 10% loss is pretty reasonable based on what we've seen in other markets. Uh, that being said, like, we, we don't know what's going to happen, if it's going to be a quarantine or not. It's, yeah. it's, so if, if we're working with the assumption that we don't go to full quarantine, um, the remainder of the assumption or the third assumption that kind of goes into these numbers is that once uh, COVID-19 passes and we just kind of guess that might be in May, um, that we would see a return to the same growth rate we had pre-COVID, um, kind of an idea that things go back to normal. Um, again, these, this is all looking at it from the perspective we don't go into full quarantine and are forced to actually close the tap room, um, which I suppose is a possibility, but... I think it's a real possibility we might end up seeing it. It's just too early to call that or say that right now. And uh, if we do go into full quarantine, like I think we would probably have to start looking at staff, so, staffing reductions yeah, yeah, and uh, you know something to make it through that time or potentially even a financial assistance from the state itself if yeah. they would offer that. Uh, that would be very dire, to say the least, if we went into full quarantine. There's no doubt about it. The other thing we need to consider as well is that all of these you know, economic depressions in the short term might actually lead to a recession, uh, at least a short-term recession. I know if any of you guys follow the markets, you've probably seen that as well. And interestingly enough, uh, it's, it's difficult to say how much a recession would actually uh, impact our overall growth. I would say it would definitely shrink it. We'd probably be looking at that more low-end estimate. But in a recession, people tend to favor wholesalers, and with our new expansions, uh, it might actually end up coming out in the wash or actually even being a bit of a positive. Um, it's really hard to predict. It's really point. hard to yeah. predict at this point, especially given the nature of a recession as to like, how strong of a recession it would actually be. Uh, you know, one bit of good news we have is the job market's still very strong, so you know, that's nice. Uh, but it is something we are looking into. Uh, but as I said, our existing strategy of trying to go wide would benefit us in a recession, or at least that would be how you'd want to be positioned. Uh, people tend to not go out to bars, they tend to go to wholesalers and drink at home. So, uh, We've already taken a couple steps to try to mitigate some of these losses. The, the immediate one, obviously, is um, you know this weekend expecting to bring in that amount of cash from PWR and then, and then suddenly not uh, is pretty massive. Um, we tried to keep that piece out of the conversation with PWR because we didn't want any of the decisions to be made in terms of people's health and a risk to people's health to be based on a financial financial concern. Um, however, uh, Dynamo Special Distribution, I reached out to the owner today, explained to him the situation, and um, they were kind enough to early pay about $17,000 in invoices uh, over the next, basically an early pay over the next week and a half for two weeks. 
just basically just to help us out. I mean, they're they're one of our oldest partners. We certainly had our ups and downs with them, but uh, that was a pretty um, pretty nice gesture that they made. How now? Now that what that means is it's not it's not like we uh, have made an additional seventeen thousand dollars. It just means we we were given that cash well in advance of when we would have gotten it. So we're kind of borrowing, not borrowing, but like we've taken money that we would have gotten otherwise down the road. What that really has purchased us is time to kind of understand what's happening and to figure out a, a strategy to navigate what's coming up. Um, so that, that amount of money does buy us, I believe, the time we need to figure out and get a sense of what's really going to happen, you know, we hope. Um, it's, the, it's the best we were able to do it on, on such a short notice. And this is all developed within the last 24 hours. Um, we have even floated the idea of reaching out to Amplify. Uh, as, as, as weird as that sounds, we've, we have considered the fact that they might be um, empathetic to our situation and be able to help us either in you know, pushing out loan payments or possibly running a, a very small bridge loan just to cover the differences. Uh, but again, uh, we've, thanks, to the, uh, thanks to the generosity of Dynamo Specialty, our, our, our distribution partner here in Austin, um, we have we have a little bit more time to to work out a plan to to navigate this situation. Yeah. So ideally, in the best case scenario, what we're really trying to do is you know generate funds to float us till we can have the PWR and pay back those funds. And whether that's through Amplify or other means, we're open. Yeah. So so Dee's right. So with the PWR cancellation, um, while these numbers do assume that PWR is canceled, uh, it has been just postponed. So. We've committed, to, you know, in two weeks from two weeks from today, uh, we're going to sit back down with the PWR management, and based on the progression of COVID nineteen, make a decision as to whether or not we are going to have the the rawhide rave the show, you know, in April, um, or if it's just going to, you know, replace. I, I suppose it would replace the July show. If we can find a way to still have four shows in twenty twenty, we're going to do that. Um, that's that's best for everybody. Uh, it's just we, we there's just you know things are changing hour to hour at this point, so we're just gonna have to wait two weeks to kind of see what we do. Yeah. I want to stop here and kind of open the floor for questions. Yeah, we get time for questions. So I, I, so I have a question, Dave Alco. Um, there's been a lot of discussion on TV about uh, South by having insurance protection for their event whether or not postponing versus canceling would allow them to get any kind of compensation. Uh, do you have anything like that in the plan, and does it matter whether they postpone or cancel? So the two things I'd say there, so I, I've heard that as well. So South by, as, as far as I understand, actually does not have coverage for a pandemic, which means they will not be able to be compensated for canceling the event. Um, as, as we understand it, over 50 people have already been laid off from the company um, including one of our, our demo people. And so we, we actually tried to offer her additional demos for the month of March until HEB came in and said, and they canceled all in-store demos and sampling. Um, but uh, to the second part of your question, uh, I am in contact with our insurance company to see if we have pandemic coverage. Um, I am not confident that this will qualify for a loss of business or loss of revenue uh, situation that we can make that claim but we are definitely going to try you, you budgeted I mean it's something you clearly were talking about earlier as being very important 
for the business in the near term. Yeah. Sounds like you have a case. It's it it, it feels like we have a case, right? Yeah. I mean, like I said, we're definitely gonna make the claim. Um, I'm just I'm not, I don't want to, you know. That would be a nice. It would be a nice bonus if we got it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Having dealt with insurance agencies in the past, like, it is very much like pulling teeth, and understandably so. Like, this is you know how they make the bread and butter essentially. Um, so I'm not very confident that'll happen. I don't have any evidence that we. Yeah, we're definitely going to try for it, but because uh, we're trying every avenue, uh, but I'm not confident that that will succeed. So I have to be honest about that. Uh, any, any, so another question. Sure. Another question. So, if if um, if there is a recession and there's a drop back in production, uh, drop back in sales, is there an inventory storage problem? You said you had the cold room, but do you have places to put things, or are you just going to cut back on production? Is yeah. that, or do you have a plan for a recession? Yeah. So we have been thinking through plans and, and contingencies. Um, I think it depends on the severity of the recession. I don't believe right now we're going to enter a very severe recession. I think if we if we do enter a recession, it's going to be fairly mild, not like what we had in 2008. Um, <laughs> I hope not. I hope not, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you weren't watching CNBC today, were you? <laughs> well, I've, I've been reading CNBC actually. CNBC was Armageddon today. I'm yeah, sure well, I mean, yeah. understandably so, right? So like every stock indices, like every, every, they all tanked. Everything's tanking. A lot of people are hoarding cash. Um, I think a lot of people are waiting on news from our government to really figure out like what the central direction is, and we are as well. Um, I would really like to see some clarity there. I think that would be helpful and, and, and remove a lot of doubt. But you know, having said that, um, we have ex- expanded our markets, and that was always our plan. I think what a recession would do is that it would cap our growth. I think we would still see growth even in a recession. It just not be the growth that we're looking for. Um, but you wouldn't have an inventory problem. I, I don't think we would have an inventory problem. Um, no, between yeah, between the additional space that we've developed here at the brewery um, and the relationship we have with our distri- distribution partners, I, I'm, we're not too concerned about. Uh, we we do the addition of the cold room kind of kind of gave us just an, an, enough buffer now in, internally to uh, ebb and flow our production against what's happening with demand. Um, so at, at the time, at the moment, um, we don't see that as being an issue. Not not to say that it couldn't become one. I mean, any, any, you know, anything's possible. It's yeah. But I, I think demand would have to spike pretty hard, which would be a, a good problem to have. Yeah, it would, it would have to be. We'd have to see a, like a hard spike in demand, and then suddenly a hard fall off faster yeah. than we could accommodate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, okay. the cold room basically allows us to absorb a wider, you know, already a a, a larger amplitude of of. Um, of demand, uh, so it would take something even larger than that now to, to catch us, which again could happen, but you know, it's we'll, we'll right. Work so, so the drop off in demand versus a, a, a sudden spike in demand later when things get better, you can handle that based on your operations. Uh, I mean, I, I believe so. I yeah. believe we could, it would have to be really severe. So, yeah. like, let's take the worst case, yeah, well, let's, let's okay. take the worst case scenario, right? So, we're talking. Uh, full quarantine, depletions of grocery stores drop by like 80%. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, so we're talking like massive production depletions. At, I think at that point what we would right. do is we would fill our back stocks, uh, you know, our cold rooms to the max, and we would probably then have staffing changes, re- reduce staff to the quarantine. Well, if the, if the grocery stores are still open. 
The grocery stores will be open, yeah. but I and think we, it's, we would still be selling. So it's still diff- it's, right. it's so difficult to there, say like what I the place would today. Be. I was there today. The one at Duration I met at just a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. It was panic buying yeah. of water and, and toilet paper and everything going on. It was unbelievable. Yeah, and, and we've definitely seen our depletions pick up in the short term because of this, which is yeah. which is great. But I would also anticipate that if we had a full quarantine, uh, there's got to be some drop off. Like people are allowed to go to the grocery store, but they're like told to buy like stand within like three meters of each other. It's like very bizarre. Some of these quarantine rules. Um, so it's probably still going to buy beer. They're probably still going to buy beer. Probably going to buy more beer if I had to guess. I don't know. I, I can't say that. I don't have the. I can't confidently say that. Sure. I don't have the numbers. Sure, sure. I just want to talk about a projection of a worst case scenario where, like, we see de- depletions massively drop off. Yeah, we would probably reorganize our staff a bit. Obviously, there wouldn't be any need to have people can beer that's you know already full. We would reduce our costs that way, and we would definitely hunker down into a bear mode, which honestly would feed more into a recession, right? Like, because then we're not paying people. Those people don't have money. They're not going to buy things. So I, we don't really want to go down that chain, uh, but in the worst case, like that's what we would do. And then when the quarantines end, you you may see a, a resurgence back to normal levels, and we would have enough space, I believe, in our cold rooms to basically be able to restart our production, supply all of our new markets plus the existing markets. I think we can fit enough beer in our cold room. Another consideration we might even do during that time period, since depletions for kegs might be very low, we may actually favor cans and literally dump kegs to put more pallets of cans knowing that wholesalers will be uh, you know, the majority of where the beer is going to be sold. Yeah. Like, we'll do whatever it takes to meet the market, uh, and we're, we're tracking that very closely. Um, and one thing we've done in the past, uh, which is still an option to us, when, when we find ourselves uh, without storage capacity, is, is uh, I've worked deals with our distributors before where it's like, hey, you know, we know you don't need this beer for another four weeks, but um, if you'll take it for storage purposes... We'll extend the terms. Instead of being a net 30, we'll do it at net 45 yeah. or net 60. And basically set the terms through the for the expected sell-through rate so that everything kind of still works out the same. And that way it gets out of our cold room. It gets into their cold room. They've got it. And, and uh, that that we've had some success with that in the past. Yeah. Okay. So having good distribution networks really helps here, doesn't it? Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. It does. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Uh, Any other questions? Next question. Yeah, yeah. Next question. Oh, uh, this is Chris MJ. I got a quick question. Hey, Chris, fired off. Hey, it's Chris. Doing good. Um, have you started looking at the process for getting, or at least looking at getting, one of these disaster relief lending opportunities that the SBA has been empowered to provide? So that will be good. Not just yet. I think we found out. I found out about it this morning. I think it was a eight and a half billion dollars that was given to the SBA. So we're gonna. That would be yeah. through Amplify. So part of the conversation we're gonna have with them would be, hey, we understand the SBA has been given this money. Um, we, how can we get it? How can we get some? Essentially. Um, but yeah, right. we're, we're well, definitely low interest loans is, is what they're offering. Um, I think it's like three and three quarters is, is what they're they're providing. I'm just I fear based on you know despite the uh, urgency that is being faced by small businesses, I fear that amplified speed might still be an issue and maybe starting to look into that process sooner rather than later is prudent. That's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, like I said. I mean, I think today, like, we were, yep. today has been very chaotic, I'll say the least. We've been tracking down a lot of COVID-related things, making sure we have all our ducks in a row. 
but yeah, definitely could, starting I tomorrow. I don't think we're going to limit ourselves just to Amplify. I'll look. We still have a relationship with Business Bank of Texas. And we do. With uh, Frost. Yeah, we'll hit them up tomorrow. We'll get this conversation started. That's a great suggestion. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. Any any other questions at the moment? Well, as as always, Darius and I are available. Um, oh, there is one other one Actually, thing I want to bring up now. There's a few things we should talk about too. K ones. I yes. know uh, those have been a concern. So K ones. Uh, the deadline to have this out is March fifteenth, and I've been on top of our uh, our um, accounting firm, and they have assured me as of today that they are about to go out. Uh, they, we've, I've been, we've, we've been riding them since the beginning of the year to make sure that that happens on time. Uh, if anything should change between now and, and March 15th, I will let everybody know. But as far as I understand, as, as I've been told, uh, we should be on pace. So, yay. And I'd add, too, if you're sick. That's great. Yeah, I know K1s are a problem for a lot of people. It's a problem for me, too. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, if you're interested in reaching out and, and helping us, like, maybe float this uh, PWR shift in cash flow, like, we're very interested in and talk to you. Um, obviously, we're still waiting on more information to see like when the show actually gets scheduled and how COVID starts panning out, but uh, we will definitely reach out. I've also been informed that there was an issue getting to the Google Hangouts. I will probably fire off another email after this. Um, anyone who is not able to join because of the Hangouts issue or the meeting issue, I will meet with them personally. John and I will meet with them personally. I apologize about that. I'll make sure those technical issues are ironed out for the next meeting. All right. Well, it was really good to hear from you guys. I'm sorry it's been taking us so long. Uh, it's been a whirlwind of activity here. Um, we really appreciate the, you know, taking the time to speak with us. It was a very interesting call. Yeah. yeah we, these, are in, these are definitely interesting yeah. times, for sure. That's right. Yeah, may you live in interesting times, unfortunately. <laughs> All, right, All right, guys. Well, thank you, everybody. Y'all have a good evening. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye.